Gang, welcome back to Movie Mindset. Now, uh, I'll, I'll introduce uh, today's episode uh, by saying that uh, up, up until now, the previous two episodes about Tony Scott and Denzel Washington and Mickey Rourke, I think fairly represent um, sort of the, uh, the the peculiarities of my own personal taste and Hesse yours as well. Uh, they're some of my favorite movies, but I would say now with this episode, we are transitioning out of that and into the not optional phase of our endeavor the canon yeah the hollywood this is, canon uh the two movies we are going to be talking about today and the director uh which are billy wilder's double indemnity from 1944 and sunset boulevard from 1950 i would say that you cannot have an opinion on movies or even american culture itself unless you have studied these two films mm-hmm. exactly but before we get into them, uh, I will begin, as I did last week, by just asking, Hesha, what movies have you been watching? Well, last night, my friend and I went to go see a screening of Christine. Oh, the John Carpenter's Christine? Yeah. Or, okay. And I'd never seen it before. Oh, wow. And it absolutely whipped. Christine was, is the most underrated John Carpenter movie. It is so, so good. I think it's about him doing cocaine for the first time <laughs> and like isolating all his friends. <laughs> The shitters, man. <laughs> the world is full of shitters. Uh, Every scene in the first half hour starts off like a porno scene. It's it's incredible. The scene with like uh, with uh, the car like reassembles itself, and he's like, "Show me, <laughs> yeah. show me." It's, but yeah, uh, and I, as long as John Christine, I got I got a shout out. Uh, Buddy Repperton and his crew are officially the oldest looking high school kids <laughs> yeah. that have ever been in a movie. Well, I think I think Steve McQueen and the the Blob might have <laughs> yeah, them beat out yeah, yeah. when people are like. What's up? What's up, son? How are you? <laughs> He's like, this is the forty-one-year-old man. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Keith Gordon. Um, no, I, I, I see. Just a couple of weeks ago, I saw both Dress to Kill and Christine in the same re- same week, which is a real like. Let's teach Keith Gordon how to get pussy double feature. Yeah, <laughs> but oh god, Christine is fantastic. Is uh, uh any any other films? Um, that's pretty much it. It's been okay. a slow week. I got, I, got, I got two movies for you that I think I'll introduce uh, that'll sort of lead nicely into Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard, uh, starting with uh, Joseph von Sternberg's Shanghai Express, starring Marlena Dietrich. A little classic. Of, yeah, dude, it's got, a, it's, got, it's got everything that a movie should have, which is basically smoking cigarettes, and most of it takes place on a train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the thing, I, you know, this, this is like a classic, like pre-code, very salacious, sort of sexy um, adventure, romance uh, that takes place, on, you know, as I said, on board the, the Shanghai Express. And what I like about this one, or as with all of Marlene Dietrich's movies, is that she uh, is always like, a, like uh, she always plays a character that is, um, euf- is, has some sort of euphemistic attribution that means prostitute. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, uh, she is described as a coaster. <laughs> which is a woman who travels the coast of China surviving on her wits alone. <laughs> her wits, yeah. quote unquote. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Marlene Dietrich, if you want to see, like, you know, just, just how good a person can look smoking cigarettes in a movie, 
Uh, please check out Shanghai Express by Joseph von Sternberg. And then the next one I watched was um, John Dahl's uh, The Last Seduction from 1987, I believe, mm. uh, which is like, you know, a, a neo-noir that I think it would make a very good pairing with uh, Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity because it is, you know, it is a noir femme fatale story set in the world of insurance sales. And I think insurance companies and the whole, the whole concept of uh, insurance is a great vehicle for the noir genre because it really is about, you know, distilling human life down to numbers yeah. and value. And, and all, I will, what I will say about The Last Seduction is that it is a vehicle for one character and one performance alone. That is Linda Fiorentino as the, in my opinion, the ultimate femme fatale. I mean, like, if you think Barbara Stanwyck is evil in Double Indemnity, you, he has got nothing on Bridget Gregory slash Wendy Croy, who is just about the most evil and therefore hottest woman ever put in a movie. Okay. And uh, John Dahl, also, like, an interesting director. He's gone on to, like, have mostly be successful in uh, sort of television directing these days, but he also directed the, uh, the other neo-noir, Red Rock West, with Nicolas Cage and Dennis Hopper. Very good movie. I'd highly recommend. And then Joyride with uh, Paul Walker and Steve Zahn. Okay, I've seen that one. So Classic. yeah, I would I would recommend uh, John Dahl's an interesting director. I'd re- I'd recommend both Red Rock, Red Rock West and The Last Seduction as two great examples of sort of eighties neo noir, along with the Coen Brothers Blood Simple. But movies that are very much influenced by the first movie we we're going to talk about today, uh, Double Indemnity. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where should we begin with? Like uh, Billy Wilder, Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard. I mean, like I said, that these these two movies are just about. The two of the most important movies to understanding movies themselves in, in a modern era, but also like just American culture in the post-war world and where we were all headed. Yeah, I think like Double Indemnity is one of like the er like film noirs or films noir. I yeah. guess. but <laughs> because I think it's that like the Maltese Falcon and maybe the Big Sleep are kind of the three out of the past. I would, I would throw. Oh yeah, out of the yeah. past. Also, it's kind of like you know just very classic it has all the elements a lot of it takes place during the day which is a little different than a lot of other noirs but i think like it's none the worse for it and it's absolutely one of the most classic my whenever i think of it i think of all the cool ways they light cigarettes in it strike anywhere matches yeah Yeah, truly utilized to great effect in this movie but yeah you mentioned uh like, you know, we were talking about Barfly last week. I think both Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard are, like, you're right. Uh, Double Indemnity, a lot of it takes place in a very brightly lit insurance office, which is contrasted uh, very heavily with uh, the Dietrichson house on Los Feliz Boulevard, mm-hmm. which is, you know, like everything inside there is caressed in shadow. Yeah, but, musty, you know, like, dark. I, I think both of them are kind of uh, L.A. at night movies. Both movies are narrated by dead men, and both are about murder. Uh, one is, of course, really about the American obsession with fame and celebrity. And the other Double, indemn- double Indemnity that I'm talking about right now is a, is a very interesting movie because it's really one of the first movies that I think like really kind of like coldly examines murder as like a practical and intellectual exercise. Yeah, truly. And it's like, I also love that it has like it by the end murder is reduced like you said like how insurance reduces human life to numbers by the end of double indemnity murder is just kind of a ticket out kind of it's a very you know because it starts with them planning the murder of the husband obviously and then she starts planning murders of other people he starts planning a murder of her and like (laughs) it's just like these two people that 
once the seal is broken on murder, they're like, all right, might as well murder to get out of this. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, the, the, the central metaphor of the movie is two people in a trolley car or a train, once again. Mm-hmm. Very important to movies, trains. Uh, but yeah, it's a, a two people straight down the line, baby, and there's only one. You can't just get off at your stop. There's only one stop, and that's the cemetery. Mm-hmm. As, you know, Keys, played by the great Edward G. Robinson, says, uh, they think they're twice as safe because there's two of them, but actually they're, it's ten times twice as dangerous. <laughs> The dialogue uh, in both these movies oh is God, insane, it's, too. It, it, it crackles. And, like, particularly <laughs> uh, Double Indemnity, you know, based on a story by James M. Kane, who wrote The Postman Always Rings Twice. Uh, the script was written by Raymond Chandler. Oh, shit. Yeah, that the Raymond Chandler it. is a collaboration between Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler. And wouldn't you know it, uh, this is like, this is Raymond Chandler's first job in Hollywood. And it nearly destroyed him. <laughs> like, he hated it. He hated Billy Wilder. <laughs> Uh, he was actually he was in, in recovery as an alcoholic when he started working on this movie and then got back on the bottle because of it. <laughs> uh, there's uh, there's a, 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 gr- a great quote I have about uh, from, from Chandler about working with uh, Billy Wilder. And he says, I can't work with a man who wears a hat in the office. I always think he's going to leave. <laughs> 40s ass. Yeah. <laughs> but. I mean, like, in both of these movies, like, starting with Double Indemnity, like, as, as you know, like, to, to highlight the work of a man who I think is, like, the quintessential American filmmaker, Billy Wilder, mm-hmm. and I think he's the quintessential American filmmaker because he was not born in America. Mm-hmm. He was an immigrant. Um, he grew up in, he was a, a, a Polish a Jewish family who grew up in Austria, then moved to uh, Berlin, where he worked as uh, a writer, a taxi driver, and a newspaper man. His brother was, um, uh, uh, older brother was involved in the film industry. He then moved to Paris when the Nazis uh, took power before coming to America. And like, it's, it's that outsider perspective that I think gives these two movies such like, an indelible quality as American films, because they are like, you know, Double Indemnity uh, released in 1944 while World War II is still going on. And Sunset Boulevard in 1950 is like the, the post-war era of American dominance really crests and comes into vision. Both of, them prevent, like, both, both of them present these really cynical and dark views of not just like the human nature, but the American character mm-hmm. that I, I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll explore further. But like, it's, 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 it's Wilder's cynicism that I think really makes him, he is always presenting like a very dark uh, and, and sort of twisted and perverse uh, examination of his characters. And like, especially in these two movies. He's so cynical. There are no heroes in any yeah. of these movies, truly. I mean, like, you know, his comedies as well. Like, you know, good on the, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll sum it up at the end, but like, to me, like Billy Wilder is one of my favorite directors because he could like fair, fairly be charged with like, the highest number of his movies that could count as like fairly described as my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. And like in both the indemnity and sunset Boulevard, I think he really like, there's a very modern quality to both of these movies. Oh, that absolutely. Make them like absolutely withhold, like stand the test of time. And I think it's because like, it's because of his, his very cynical and kind of perverse uh, worldview. But also it's that like, as I mentioned, both of these movies are narrated by dead men mm-hmm. and they have a, a kind of an extreme fatalism to them. That is, I think, like, uh, is antithetical to the kind of, I don't know, mythological American character about manifest destiny and individuality. And, like, you know, it's just we're all on the, on the trolley car straight down the line. Mm, and there's only, the line. there's only one destination, and that's the cemetery. <laughs> but, like, you know, we, we see in both these movies characters who are sort of, like, uh, com- compelled by reasons they don't understand to, like, even before they, they do, even before they make the choice that sends them on the line, they only had one choice to begin with. 
And I think like in the, in the, the voiceover narration in both these films, I think it introduces a kind of, I don't know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pretend I'm in film school and say uh, a postmodern subjectivity, mm-hmm. which means that they're like, you know, they, both stories are being told by people who are already dead. So there's no way of altering the outcome. Yeah. Um, so let, let, let's get into uh, Double Indemnity. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff, insurance agent, 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Yeah, I killed him. I killed him for money and for a woman. It all began last May. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it and I'm going to help you. We meet one Walter Neff, uh, insurance salesman extraordinaire, <laughs> played by Fred McMurray. And I, I got to think, like, as a, as a leading man, I think Fred McMurray is so perfectly cast in this because, like, he is, how, how should I put this? Not that great an actor as compared to William Holden, the lead in Sunset Boulevard, who's, mm-hmm. you know, just like a virtuoso. Oh, yeah. Like, he's just nothing but character or swag. Like, he's just everything. Whereas Fred McMurray was mostly known as a star of kind of Disney family movies, like The Absent-Minded Professor. You know, he was fucking around with Flubber. But then, <laughs> but then, but then shows up as like two absolute shitheels in Billy Wilder movies for in Double Indemnity and then and maybe even a worse guy in The Apartment. Oh, yeah. But what I mean is, like, unlike Holden, who is such a such a presence, I think Fred McMurray works so beautifully in this movie because he is kind of an, uh, a bland everyman, mm-hmm. and he is this. He presents this kind of uh, th- this perfect portrait of the kind of like uh, sort of like adrift American male who's like you know like uh, as the movie begins, he's you know selling insurance and he's sort of like walking around. And, you know, like, you know, his head in the clouds in a state of kind of uh, boredom and sexual fantasy, basically, is how I describe it. Yeah. And he's he his narration is kind of like a pre Holden Caulfield. Like he's very not disillusioned, I would say, but like he kind of sees everything as like being bullshit. He's like, yeah, I do ensure it's I'm good at it. Like the only real truth I feel like that he sees is that his buddy Keys is a good guy deep yeah. down and everything else is just like, you know, time to go out again today and sell some more policies. But it's also like, uh, you know, like uh, the salesman is almost like an interesting figure in noir because it's just like in the era of the door-to-door salesman, it was just these sort of like men loosed upon to the world in the daytime when husbands are away to basically beguile threaten (laughs) or seduce uh housewives and it's like a you know it's a job that brings you into people's homes and like you know in in crossing that threshold he begins to like you know envelop himself in this in this world of sexual fantasy as Mm -hmm. is you know the first thing we see of barbara stanwyck the great femme fatale who plays miss dietrichson in this movie is she's in a towel and we see like her as she comes down the stairs we see some feeties and -hmm. you know he notices the anklet he keeps talking about the anklet (laughs) He's an ankle and foot guy. Oh, yeah. But uh, I should say, like, the movie actually begins with, like, he's, uh, it's a late night. He's staggering into the office. Like, we know as the movie progresses that, you know, he's dying. And he goes into his office to record the voiceover narration that we hear on this really cool, like, 
uh, wax cylinder. Wax cylinder yeah. thing. That's actually how we're recording this podcast. Yeah, right yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm speaking into a gramophone, and uh, Chris is running. A, he's actually cranking by hand. <laughs> they a used wax to be called cylinder. wax casts <laughs> back in those days. And he's addressing uh, he's addressing his voiceover to his uh, his friend Keys, who we'll get into. I will just say that Keys, played by Edward G. Robinson, is probably. Once again, like one of my favorite movie characters of all time, maybe one of my favorite performances of all time. Mm-hmm. Edward G. Robinson is just so, so compelling and perfect in this role as Keys, the insurance claims investigator who is beguiled by his little man, mm-hmm. i.e. the ulcer he has from smoking 10 cigars an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and again, like wh- what I like about the beginning is that like, uh, it, 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 you know, it's, it's a story about murder, but like from the first frames of the movie, there is absolutely no mystery mm-hmm. as to who is guilty. Like he just says like, yeah, like I was the one who killed Dietrichson. And there's not only is there any, not any mystery about who done it. There's also like, there's no mystery about his motive for doing it either. And in fact, actually the real mystery of the movie is, does he even know his own motives? Yeah. Cause he says to key is like, Oh, I did it for a woman. And the money. And, and the in money. the end, I didn't get the woman or and I didn't get the money. Yeah, but like what I think is so interesting about this movie is like kind of a, a psychological portrait is that I think the money and the girl are both excuses that are legible to him, but I don't think they're really the, the true motivation for why he does anything. No, and it's the same in Sunset Boulevard, too. It's like their motivations, these two guys, are like so opaque and like only God knows what why they're doing what they're doing. It's just like truly... Because they're just on the tracks going straight down the line, yeah. truly. And that's what I mean about like the, the very grim fatalism of both these movies is that like there's really nothing like even before like uh there's really nothing that the either of these guys can do that could alter their the tragic course that they've that they're because they they were on the they were on the trolley car before they even knew they were on one. That's called truly, yeah. being born. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh so like you know, then it, it flashes back to him uh, approaching the Dietrichson house, uh which by the way uh, still exists in Los Feliz. Um, he mentions in the movie that it only costs $30,000, which is meant to be like a huge sum of money. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, wow. If you could have that house in Los Feliz for thirty grand today, holy shit. There's so many little things like that in this yeah. movie where it's like, oh yeah, it was the the 40s were wild. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Oh, I, lo- I love all the details. Like one of the first things, the first dialogue between is Neff and like the the, the elevator uh, the elevator monkey that they get to like take him up two floors <laughs> yeah. and he's just like working late Mr. Deaf and he's like bleeding to death and it's he's like, like oh god <laughs> you know, that's another great thing about this movie is the horror of having to make small talk with people is, yeah. is ringed for unbearable tension in a number yeah. of these scenes it's it's like Barbara Stanwyck says at one point oh that's a, when um, Walter Neff tells her like yeah, I just got my stuff at the deli down the street. And she's like, oh, that sounds great. It's all strangers, so you don't have to hate them because <laughs> you don't know them. And then, um, so like, you know, he, he's there to uh, follow up on um, an auto insurance claim to get to get the, the claim holder, Mr. Dietrichson, to renew. But because he comes in the middle of the day, and I also love that the housekeeper is like instantly suspicious of him. Yeah. Because she knows what's up. He knows what's up with these salesmen. They're just, <laughs> and you know, like he immediately starts flirting with her heavily. And then we got to talk about, Barbara Stanwyck as uh, Mrs. Dietrichson, who is, you know, like really, once again, like the very prototypical arch film noir femme fatale. What do you think it was about Barbara Stanwyck as like an actor and then in this performance that makes this such an iconic role as the, the, the femme fatale figure? It's, it's like the same as him where it's almost like she doesn't know her motivations at all. I mean, at the end when she spoiler alert shoots him well not spoiler alert because he basically (laughs) um is shot at the end but um 
when she shoots him, she says, I couldn't shoot another time because I've never loved anyone. I don't like I've lied about every single thing I've ever done, but I just couldn't shoot you that one time. And it's like we don't even know if she's telling the truth about that. It's like and I don't even think she knows if she's telling the truth about that at that point. And she does like such a good performance and such like she's so iconic in this movie. Yeah, like, you know, people again, people are driven to commit murder for reasons that seem legible to them out of like avarice or lust or greed. But in fact, there's, it's totally unknowable to even them. And that's why I think the fact the insurance company setting for this and the character of keys is so interesting because it comes back to this idea that like nobody knows why they do the things they do. Nobody even knows that like, but like the things they do are going to lead to like an inevitable outcome of the way they die, which can be predicted by looking at actuarial tables. It's only keys that really understands human beings because he sees them in numbers, yeah. not as people. And then, you know, I, I also love when, uh, like, he, like uh, Neff just immediately starts drinking everywhere he goes. Like, oh, yeah. He's just like, she offers him iced tea, and he's like, oh, not if you got a bottle of beer. <laughs> and then she's like, oh, would you like sugar or lemon? Like, he, he holds it for a long time when they're having their flirtation and repartee. And then he takes a sip, and he goes, a little rum would get this up on its feet. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> yeah, I and love he that. talks so much like a Raymond Chandler character. Oh, God, it's too. so good. Another line that I really love... Um, early in the movie is when she says like, you know, I'm from California and he says, they say all native Californians are from Iowa, which I think is so good. It's just, <laughs> it's so sharp. Cause like it's a, and the other thing about uh, Vara Sandwick, um, a, a, a big thing that people made note of in this movie uh, that the studio didn't like was the wig she wears in it. This like bright blonde wig. Her wig is crazy <laughs> in this. And I watching this, it's interesting that people, did people not like it at the time, or did, did you mean like now? Oh no, people didn't like it at the time because they were like, uh, I think a, a quote I have from one of the studio executives is says that like we cast Barbara Stanwyck and we got George Washington. <laughs> yeah, but I was watching. I'm like, is this hair was crazy back then? <laughs> um, but no, Billy Wilder said that that was all intentional because it wanted to like he wanted to from the beginning like play up the kind of phoniness and the artifice and kind of trashiness of of this woman that like you know. Neff becomes immediately beguiled by Mm -hmm. and that like you know she she has this very like uh like sexy beguiling way but like if you just look a little bit deeper she's like her cheap perfume her bad wig Mm -hmm. is that she's just a hustler like her and um when he first pulls up to her house he's like it's one of those spanish numbers people like to build 10 or 15 years ago like when (laughs) when it was built she was just like going with the trends of the time and now it's already out of style (laughs) like so like yeah like they're uh so he's he's pitching her on uh basically he's trying to flirt with her he's trying to get in her pants and then oh, she yeah. immediately starts asking him questions and you know if you're selling insurance this must happen all the time oh yeah you get a wife starting <laughs> asking questions about an accident policy on uh, her husband you know uh, what would it pick out you know i'm just he works in the oil fields all you know he's like oh not in the front office like he likes to get down and dirty and like whatever he's he's at risk he could he could die at any time and <laughs> is there a way you know he just he's superstitious about these things you know is there just a way we could take out a life insurance policy on him without him knowing? <laughs> yeah. And then he's just like, <laughs> you know, I know you. I'm, he, I'm hip to your game. I'm yeah. hip to your game, lady. Like, I mean, he, he says, uh, he, like, he sees through her immediately. And he goes, um, she goes, I think you're rotten. As like, Because he's just like, listen, like, I'm not going to do a murder for you. Like, are you insane? Like, mm-hmm. and she goes, I think you're rotten. And he goes, I think you're swell, as long as I'm not your husband. <laughs> And then, like, so, like, he, he sees what's, what this woman is and what she's pitching him immediately. 
And then you said, like, how cool the 40s were. Where he was like, I stopped at a drive-in for a bottle of beer. I couldn't, I couldn't get yeah. this thought out of my He's like, literally, so like, like, uh, like with a roller skate, like when they bring it up to your car window, he's yeah. like, he just gets a beer to drink in his Shugs car. Shugs like a full <laughs> bottle, like a giant bottle of yeah. beer and then drives off. And then, well, then, then goes bowling by himself. Yeah. <laughs> but... I mean, like, what's so cool about this is, like, in, in the voiceover, he starts talking about, like, because, you know, he thinks, like, he, he dismisses this as crazy, but he knows he has the hots for this lady. And then he's just, like, as soon as the thought is in your head, it's, like, it's already happened. Yeah. You know, like, he begins to, like, like, he says, he describes it as, like, you know, that, like, you know, if, 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 you, if you work a roulette wheel, like, you do it long enough and you know all the ways that people get caught for trying to, like, rook the house that you begin to think to yourself, like, how, how what I could do to rook the house mm -hmm. and get away with it because I know all of their tricks. And all you need is a shill, someone to place the bet for you. So, again, it goes back to this idea about murder as, like, an intellect, not done out of passion or any reason or, like, any insanity or, or anything or greed or anything. It's, like, as an intellectual exercise mm -hmm. because I think he is bored. And oh, yeah, like, out of boredom, literally. He's just, he's just sort of horny and adrift in life and like you know just um he's not really doing it out of any real like real it's this mix of like it, like what i mean the cynical uh impression of an american character is this mix it's this mix of ruthlessness and like utter fantasy yeah that i think combines to like create the the the, the put them on the rails of that trap mm -hmm. that trolley car and it's the contra the contrast between him and keys is like really interesting too because like if anyone in the movie is like a good person, kind of, it's probably Keys. Yeah. And not good isn't like morally good, but I mean, like, Keys seems happy. Besides his ulcer, he seems like more content with his life. Well, than he loves any other his character. job. Yeah. I mean, there's the daughter, of course, but she's like innocent. Like, all Billy Wilder characters like that, she just hasn't been corrupted yet. But Keys, on the other hand, is he just loves his job. He's content. And. You know, whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing is, I mean, obviously it's a good thing because he just isn't murdering people. Well, it's, but he's still indulging in the same intellectual exercise. Yeah, exactly. But for him, he's like, he's, he's, he's catching phonies. Mm -hmm. He's catching people, crooks and thieves and murderers because he's like, he says, you know, what, what you see is this desk, I see as an operating table. Mm -hmm. And my pencils are like a scalpel. And, you know, like, like all these things, they tell a story and it's full of drama and life. And he discerns it all through the numbers. And he asks Walter even, like, um, do you want to, like, take over for me when I'm gone? And if he had just asked him, like, one or two scenes earlier, it, this yeah, whole movie him. might yeah. have not happened, <laughs> yeah. truly. But he's already on the trolley. <laughs> yeah. So, like, uh, the, so the idea is planted in Neff's head, or he plants the idea, like, himself in his head, and it begins to take root and grow. And, like, the, his bowling and beer excursion doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, shake it from him. Because I think basically it's just he's, 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 you know, he wants to have sex with Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah. And then uh, she shows up at his apartment, and, like, you know, they, like, he basically, like, pitches her, and he's like, he's like I know a way we can do it, and we're going to get away with it. Because, you know, I'm crazy about you, baby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's another funny thing about this movie is considering, um, how dark it gets they have sex like twice yeah like you know is it, it twice I, isn't it it's like well they, they kiss in one scene and it fades to black but like at least one time for sure oh yeah yeah when she's um crying like just trembling on his shoulder softly weeping on the couch and it like fades away it's like oh yeah they're fucking <laughs> um and then you know it cuts back to neff in the present as he continues to narrate the story and then you know at this point like we in the audience have noticing that the blood stain on his suit is getting progressively larger mm -hmm. as he continues to tell his story um but you know him and uh mrs dietrichson uh they, they plan out the perfect 
murder. And then, and then, and then you know, like, and he explains double indemnity. He's like, that's, that's double indemnity. It's when the insurance, <laughs> it's when a death is so extraordinary that the insurance company, it's like, it's like double down. Yeah. You have to pay out twice as much. And they're going for the full hundred grand. So, and Which I is so say, funny that that's a thing. Also. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, it's got to be the train. It's got to be the train. A car accident? That's too common. Falling off a train? Now, there we go. Now, now we're cooking with gas. And, you know, like, uh, he, he goes to the Dietrichson house, and we meet, we meet Mr. Dietrichson, who's a real beaut. Um, great, great, great casting, great uh, performance here because um, I wanted to murder him in this yeah, scene. Yeah, he's annoying as fuck. <laughs> yeah. And he gets him to basically sign a life insurance policy and closes him on it without his knowledge. He thinks he's just re-upping uh, his auto insurance. Mm-hmm. But he's actually taking out a 100K double indemnity life yeah, insurance yeah, yeah. policy on himself. But then, as he's leaving, and like, you know, he's playing it cool with uh, Barbara Stanwyck, with Mrs. Dietrichson, and he's like, okay, like, you know, we're on the truck, you know, we're on the rails now. So we have to like, everything has to go according to plan. We can't have any contact with each other. We can't be seen together. We have to appear to each other as strangers. But things begin to immediately go wrong when Lola, the daughter, is like waiting for him in his car mm-hmm. because she's like, she's told her parents that she wants to go out roller skating. But she's um, in with fact... Anna Kendrick. <laughs> <laughs> but she's in fact meeting with her, her hood boyfriend, uh, Nino mm-hmm. Zacchetti. Nino Zacchetti. <laughs> and, you know, he, he, he drives her around and and like once again like as we see in this movie like once they actually commit the murder uh he loses all interest in barbara stanwick and he immediately becomes horny for her stepdaughter oh yeah it's so funny he's and you, like get once you get the thing you want you don't want it anymore exactly exactly it's the american the american way but um you know eternal growth you always need to go bigger <laughs> and younger mm-hmm. uh so like and then also like then we get the classic scenes of them meeting to discuss murder in a supermarket, mm-hmm. which is like, once again, I, I really want to underscore here, like this perfect vision of like, uh, at the time, World War II, but like mid-century American, like consumer life as the backdrop or like, you know, like what that would evolve into as the backdrop for, for murder and depravity. Mm-hmm. It's like amazing, like all these like moments that at that time, audiences watching it were probably like, you know, that's shit they're doing every day. And they're like, you know, oh my God, what if like when I was at the supermarket and yeah, I asked yeah. that guy to get me baby food from the top shelf, he was planning a fucking murder with that <laughs> George Washington ass <laughs> bitch behind him. <laughs> um, and uh, just one more line I want to talk about. Um, when, when Keyes pitches Neff on um, retirement, basically like taking a cut in salary, but having a way more interesting job. And he goes like, uh, do, like you want to just join me, like be my assistant as a, as a claims investigator, not a claims salesman. And he goes like, Why? I'm a salesman. And he just goes, yeah, a peddler, a glad hander, backslapper. All you guys do is ring doorbells and dish out a smooth line of monkey jaw. (laughs) And he goes, yeah, like he says, my job is about human frailty. A claims man is a surgeon. That desk is an operating table. Those claims are alive and packed with drama. And then, of course, uh, Dietrichson calls him on the phone. Uh, Keys picks up the phone. He's like, oh, what do you you want? Some some dame for you. (laughs) And then he has to pretend like he doesn't know. He's like, he's like. Yes, I am with someone hey, right now. Hey, Margie, how are <laughs> you? <Yeah. ya? laughs> and she's calling in to let him know that, um, uh, like, the, the idea is like he's planning, like, the husband is planning on taking a trip to Stanford to go to Alumni Weekend, and you know, like, he's like, oh, can I have any fun four days out of the year? Like, mm-hmm. and then he breaks his leg. They cancel the trip, but she calls him to let him know it's back on. And then we get into the um, <laughs> one way, one more detail about Keys. He says that uh, 
he says like he uh, Neff says to Keys like you should have gotten married like you need a wife in your life you like you take your job way too seriously and he goes he's like oh like I was I was close one time and he goes oh never I made this. it and he goes like oh what, did you investigate her and he goes <laughs> turns out she was dying her hair her whole life you know I knew she was <laughs> yeah. I knew she was a piece of shit <laughs> it's like she was dying her hair and her brother like uh you know cheated at cards one time <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah she's a tramp she's like, like little man his little man is talking to him. <laughs> So then, uh, so Nev knows that that night, like the plan is on, like it's it's go, it's do or die, the green light for murder. This is the best. This is my and, favorite uh, oh, sequence. It's of the, the, the movie. sequence of them, like of him, because like once again, like how cold this movie is about like presenting how to commit murder, <laughs> and it really is about like controlling the timeline and accounting for your whereabouts to backstop your alibi. It becomes a process movie at this yeah, point. Yeah, it's for, like, a procedural. Like, a few scenes. Yeah, and like the way he has to like. Uh, like, you know, like talk to the, the attendant in his apartment's garage, mm-hmm. change clothes, walk to the house so he's not seen on a bus. And then like we put the little, um, little the paper cards in his doorbell and phone. That was my so, favorite yeah. detail. I love that. So like if, like if the bell rings, like the card will spill out as, the, as it hits the ringer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the idea is that like he is going to dress the same as Mr. Dietrichson and put on a fake cast. But he's going to get in the back seat of the car and like lie down there as uh, Mrs. Dietrichson drives her husband to her, his appointed fate. And he's just like, why are you turning down this dark street? Well, I only tell, you never listen to me or whatever. Honks the horn three times and it's oh, like he just killed, he killed, he comes out from the backseat and like strangles him, strangles him to death, breaks his neck. Now there's another thing in this movie, like how bad was forensics in the 1940s? That yeah. They, like, <laughs> couldn't determine how someone's neck was broke. Like he's like, clearly has like, you know, like did they, did, they, did they not know about the hyoid bone back then? Yeah. <laughs> and about what is an accidental neck breaking versus a murder. This guy didn't fall off a train. He <laughs> kneeled with his own bed sheets wrapped around his neck. <laughs> and then we get a great scene on a train, you know, so many, so many great Billy Wilder moments on trains, like some like it hot, you know, the party mm-hmm. they oh, have yeah, on the train course, is, is fantastic. But this one, it's like, he's, he's now taken the place of Mr. Dietrichson and like he's, is seen by witnesses getting on the train and saying goodbye to his wife. He, he walks to the, uh, to the, the observation car at the very end of the train to like, you know, have a smoke again. One of the, just God, we need to bring that back. Right. Just like sitting on like a, like a nice <laughs> Adirondack chair on the very back of a train, smoking a cigar Nothing. in a suit. Nothing. You have to wear a suit or else you're a bum. <laughs> Nothing could be finer. And then we meet next to Keys, my other favorite character in this movie, the Medford Man from Medford, <laughs> Oregon. And here we get in the wrench in the plan is once again the absolute <laughs> hell of small talk. Yeah. Because like he's like he's supposed to be noticed, but not make enough of an impression that anyone will remember him or what mm-hmm. he looks like. And then we got this this slack-jawed uh, moron on the back of the train <laughs> yeah. who immediately is just like, oh, like a pretty cool night out here. Like, <laughs> hey, would you say you're about six foot three, brown hair, uh, in mid-30s? <laughs> yeah. Like a fucking nine-year-old. He's like, hang on, mom and dad. There's someone I haven't met yet over there. <laughs> like, get the fuck away, kid. <laughs> um, but he's able to dispatch this this Medford rube by being like, oh, I left my... Left my cigars back in uh, my, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm infirmed by now. I can't get my cigars. And then he's like, oh, well, you can have one of my cigarettes. They're pretty good. <laughs> and, then he, then he, and then finally he gets like this oaf uh, volunteers to like go back into the train and get his cigar case for him. And that's when he ditches the crutches off the end of the train, jumps off, meets up with Barbara Stanwyck. They put the body of her murdered husband on the train tracks. He gets in the car with her. Then the car doesn't start. You know, a great, a great uh, uh, sort of... Um, a great omen of things to come. Being oh, yeah. like, there is no perfect murder. You cannot account 
for all the variables because you cannot ever account for yourself and why you're doing the things you're doing. That's my favorite moment in the entire movie and like one of my favorite movies, moments like ever in a movie because it, it's them like in dead silence and they yeah. the horror that creeps across their faces as she's turning the keys and they won't start. <laughs> And it's they're just like everything went perfect, and then just like very Cohen Brothers like yeah. Sam Raimi type moment of just like, mm. and it has another another great bit of like nineteen forties period detail here is like so Neff um, returns to his house after doing the perfect murder, but he has one last thing to do which is um, talk to the gas station uh, no sorry the 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 car attendant in his building's garage one more time to be like oh I've just. Uh, been up in my apartment for the last several hours working, but I'm, I'm going out now. And he's like, I changed again. And like, so he's just committed a murder, sweating bullets. He's changed out of one suit and then immediately it cuts him and he's just in another suit. <laughs> yeah. Like he gets home and it's just like, can't just put on a t-shirt or a sweatpants <laughs> or anything like that. Like you could not, you could not get out of bed in the 1940s without putting on a full suit that came like 10 inches above your belly button. Yeah. With shoulders that are like four feet wide, you could land a plane on the fucking yeah. the breast of these suits. David Byrne ass yeah. like suit, yeah. and and like you know, so he's like he's they got away with it scot free, and he's just like he's established his final piece for his alibi, and he's walking down the street in his new suit, in his fresh suit, <laughs> all by himself, and then he's frozen because he's just like I just had the feeling that it was all gonna go wrong, and of course it does, and this is like. I know this movie very like tightly, tightly skirted the strictures of the Hayes Code because of how frank it is about like you know murder and sexuality. Mm-hmm. But like I guess like they thought like oh like this would like encourage people to because they think to think they could get away with murder. But like no, it's actually the exact opposite. Yeah, this movie is a like and look, listeners, if you are planning on doing a premeditated homicide, especially with another person, let this movie dissuade you from it because there's really no way you can get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> You are not that smart. There's always a keys out there somewhere. Oh, yeah. So, like, and what I love about this is, like, from the moment that the murder happens and they get away with it, every second of Neff's life from that moment on is, like, he's already in prison. He's in a waking hell. Yeah. It's, like, worse than prison, worse than being dead, worse than anything. And it's, like, I don't know, this, like, every scene in this part, especially when he's, like, talking to keys, when he sees the Medford guy outside his office, when he's, like... Um, every scene kind of reminded me of like when you're a kid and you like didn't do your homework or yeah. you did something wrong <laughs> yeah, and yeah. like you just have the, you have that feeling of like because you have no sense of scale and it's like oh my god my life is fucking over <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> except in this case it would be accurate yeah it's accurate in this case <laughs> it's not they're just like um like uh, they're like yeah like you get called on in class and they're like uh, Hessa how did Johnny Tremaine injure his hand and you're like uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like so, as it goes on, like, and they they're called into the president of the insurance company's office. In another great scene, a total where, idiot. Yeah, which is a complete dunce. Yeah, like <laughs> he sucks at his yeah. job. <laughs> and he's there with keys, and keys like, come on, come on, Neff, I want to show you something. And like, you know, he's like, he goes into the office because like this is a huge claim they're gonna have to pay out on. And the president of the company is looking for any excuse not to pay it. And he proposes the idea that, like, oh, this was suicide. This is one of my favorite lines in the movie because um, she he tells her, like, Neff and her are, like, so nervous because they're, like, they kind of draw it out so you don't know what the president's going to say. And it, they make it sound like he might kind of think it's murder. But then at the end, he drops, like, he killed himself by jumping off of a five-mile-per-hour train. <laughs> yeah. and <laughs> And then he says, you know, we might take you to court for this. And she's, like... 
what are you talking about? You fuck, you moron. And starts like getting teared up. And he's like, now hold on. I didn't say, I said we might take you to court. I didn't say we were gonna. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Miss, Mrs. Dietrichson does the perfect like doe-eyed wife, innocent wife routine where she's like, she has the morning veil on and she's like, you know, like a Mr. Insurance Company. I didn't, I didn't even know you owed me money until you came here. And now you're talking about taking me to court. And I just, I, and he's like, oh no, no, they're there. And then we get, uh, the great line where Keyes schools the president of the insurance company. He's like, you should read. He's like, you, you know, he's like, I've been in insurance my entire life, Mr. Keyes. And he goes, yeah, from the executive office. Yeah. You've never read a claims that you've never read an actuarial table in your life. And if you did, you might learn something about this business. Like the fact that nobody kills himself by jumping off a train <laughs> and certainly not a train that was going five miles an hour, <laughs> which you'd have no, no possible like uh, way to rely that it would you kill you it would break your neck. <laughs> and then there's a great, there's a, just, I mean, like the, the writing in this is just, so good where keys has this instant like this fantastic monologue where he talks about you want to talk about suicides we have charts for suicides of every kind by hanging by poison subdivided by kinds of poison uh, uh, suicides by leaping suicides by leaping from which height you know and he goes and he's mm-hmm. like and he's like no we're stuck we get you're gonna pay you know mm-hmm. like he's like the suicide thing was the first thing i thought of and i dismissed it completely but that's not so once again Neff thinks, oh, thank God, the smartest guy. The we're one guy in, I was worried about. We're in the clear. And yeah. this is another one of the best scenes like oh, ever. Oh, God, yeah. Is he's in his apartment. And this is another like 40s thing that happens. And I guess this is like a 40s to 90s thing. Because um, if they had a cell phone, this scene wouldn't be <laughs> yeah. nearly as compelling. But she calls his apartment and is like um, from the pharmacy down the street, like a block away from him, of course. Um and she's like, all right, we did it, baby. Like, I'm on my way over. I'm a block away. And then knock at the door the second he hangs up the phone and he just freezes and it's keys. And he knows that she's on her way. Yeah, there. She's walking to his apartment right uh-huh. now. <laughs> and like he like, you know, is about to breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah, because the one guy who's smart enough to, to suss out their perfect murder plan is like on their side. Mm-hmm. But then keys shows up at his apartment unannounced barges in you know gets him to light a cigar for him you know like uh, neff is always lighting uh, a match with his thumb mm-hmm. and he's always lighting keys cigars for him and mm-hmm. like you know there's a very much a father and son dynamic yeah i mean the like, first thing he says when he lights the cigar for the first time to him is i love you too <laughs> yes and um he like delays for a sec when he lights he's lights this he's about to light the cigarette and keys is like it was murder why wouldn't he like? Um, he broke cash his leg, in. but he never, he never, he never like filed the claim with the accident policy that he just took out. Yes, exactly. And he goes, "My little man," you know. I was like, "I was yeah." Mm-hmm. He goes, "Neff, I was eating dinner, but I could, couldn't even get it down because this lump of concrete in my chest." And I ate like, it two hours ago, and it's still right here. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, "Fuck," and you know, like, and, and like, and then Neff is like, "Oh fuck," like doubly fuck because he's like, you know, uh, Keys is onto this murder plot, and you've got Miss Dietrichson like coming out of his elevator. She gets there first and hears him through the door and stands right behind his apartment door. And Neff opens the door to like cover her. And there's this long, amazing scene in the hallway mm-hmm. where you can see all three of them. But you like you, you, Neff knows she's there, but Keys can't see her because she's behind his apartment door. Mm-hmm. And then like he asks her to light another cigar for him, and he's like walking towards him. And then it's gets, so and then good. gets in the elevator, and he like you know hurries her into the apartment. The framing is so perfect. Yeah. Like and then also he like Keys also introduces the idea that like it's very likely that Barbara Stanwyck killed her husband's first wife because mm-hmm. she was like uh, she was her nurse. Mm-hmm. Very likely she maybe like left the window open if you know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, yeah. But then like Lola, the daughter, becomes like more and more of a problem because like 
she shows up uh, accusing uh, her stepmom and like as and reveals the fact that again can never plan the perfect murder because like before her father died she saw her stepmom trying out mourning clothing in a mirror <laughs> he's like just want to see what i would look like in all black so he begins to like uh basically like uh pay attention to her to get her to stop like to not tell anyone else that very important detail yeah so he starts like taking her to uh you know the a movie mexican restaurant. Yeah, a mexican restaurant yeah but then again immediately it just becomes sexually infatuated with her yeah there's a great scene where they're like overlooking the city it's like the hollywood bowl yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so like basically neff knows like at a certain point like neff knows that like like uh that mrs dietrichson has is going to turn on him because uh he's you know He's uh, hips into the idea that like if you do any crime, let alone a murder with an accomplice, you're twice, you're ten <laughs> times twice as fucked. That like yeah, like that they're always gonna have something over you. Like you're mm-hmm. never gonna be free of it. Like you know, if two people know one secret, then like that's already too many. And he's he starts thinking like, oh fuck, I knew this woman for like two hours before I <laughs> yeah, did a murder. Right, with her. Don't do a murder <laughs> with her. Yeah, he's like, yeah, oh like, is there a chance that she's actually kind of untrustworthy? Yeah. <laughs> and then uh you know and then keys is like he runs into him in the lobby and he's like like we got we got her dead to rights i just i'm waiting i'm biding my time i'm just like licking my lips waiting for her to file suit because i'm going to tear her apart in court mm-hmm. and the guy she did this with neff goes into uh keys's office and listens to his wax recording and in a, and in a heartbreaking moment he hears his him keys tell the company or like you know in filing his report they're like I vouch for Walter Neff implicitly. Yeah, he says, um, the, he says, like, and another thing, you telling me to look into Walter Neff? Forget about it. He, it's not him. <laughs> He's a solid guy. He mm-hmm. never, never committed murder. That's my boy. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> That's my quarterback. But, you know, uh, uh, the person they do begin to uh, focus on is Lola's boyfriend, the sort of, like, ex-medical student. Nino Sacchetti. Nino Sacchetti. Sacco and Vanzetti. This <laughs> <Yeah>. anti-Italian <laughs> yeah. film. Because there's also, there's another, like, foreign guy. It's, like, not clear what he is, like, at the beginning. And it's when we first meet Keys. And it's this, like... Oh yeah, Total, like the, the yeah, the guy burns his truck. The uh, dumbest man in history. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, burns like, his why truck. Do you, why do you not give me my money? My truck uh, catch on fire. Look, Mister Keys, <laughs> I don't feel so good. You catching me and all that. You know, maybe you give me a little bit of money. You know? And then Keys is like, "Oh, you'll feel better in a second. Just sign this waiver." Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's the matter? Don't you remember how to open a door? And then he gives him step by step instructions on how to open a door. <laughs> and um, so the two kinds of foreigner, there's the um, or the two kinds of Mediterranean foreigner who are um, you know, the dumbest man on earth and the most violent like creep on the planet or and then like uh contrast those two characters with you know the medford man from medford yeah. oregon i am the medford man i'm medford a medford oregon. man I, when i say what i mean i mean what i say and of course i'll <laughs> swear to it and by the way uh just i love i love how funny that character is because like it's unbearably tense the scene where they're in uh keys's office together mm-hmm. and like he's seen neff on the train and but he's like he he's he's there to identify like the the deceased Mr. Dietrichson. He said like, look, it was dark, but that's definitely not the guy I saw on the train. Mm-hmm. He was about you know uh, your height and build, yeah. <laughs> and that's like the main thing he has on yeah. um on them is like you know oh this guy you know says that wasn't him, so we know it wasn't him, which is why she can't like sue and be like pay me the money. I didn't like no one got murdered. Um, and then also as, as the Medford man's leaving, he like he says. Uh, 
I plan to see a great an osteopath as long as I'm here. And then he says, like, just as long as you don't expense her, like osteopath being another great euphemism for hooker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um when he's talking to um Walter Neff and he's like, You ever been to Medford? You know what I'm thinking of? There's a family of Neffs up in Medford. Jo- Jonas, Rachel, and he's like talking to him about Medford and Walter Neff is like sweating. He's like Stop fucking he, talking he, to me. He keeps trying to turn away from him, like <laughs> yeah. slightly angle himself so he's not looking directly at his face. <laughs> so basically, uh, like, Neff realizes that uh, Mrs. Dietrichson is plotting to double cross him. Mm-hmm. So and then he just begins to plot her murder. They're both, they're like, they're, they're both plotting against each other. And, you know, like he goes, went back one last time to the Los Feliz house. And here we get truly an iconic, iconic shot of Barbara Stanwyck lighting a cigarette in profile as she like places a gun underneath the uh, couch cushion and mm-hmm. plots Neff's murder. But like when I talked about the beginning is like the, the visual contrast in the, uh, the insurance company offices and the, the Dietrichson household, because like everything in, in, in the Dietrichson household is just like caressed by shadow. Mm-hmm. And then like the scenes of Barbara Stanwyck lighting her cigarette is just like to have her face like, you know, highlighted by this glow it's just like it's so ethereal and beautiful, and it's just like the, these two characters coming together, both plotting to kill each other, mm-hmm. and for one final thing, and it is we're both rotten. Yeah, we're both just rotten, and like that's about as close to a real like, demonstration of motive, a real revelation of the psychological reasons behind this entire murder to begin with. Mm-hmm. They're both just rotten. It's people. nature, not nurture. <laughs> it's truly. Um, so uh, yeah, she shoots him. But mm-hmm. then can't shoot him a second time. Mm-hmm. She uses that opportunity to shoot her several times. Yeah, which <laughs> is <Yeah. laughs> he's like, she's like, just hold me, and he holds her for like three seconds, and then, pow, 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 pow. Yeah. <laughs> and then like he he tells um, uh, Sacco and Vanzetti outside, he's yeah. like, hey kid, do yourself a favor and uh, get away from here because you're about to get stitched up for a murder. <laughs> yeah. So he like you know does one sort of semi altruistic act at the end of the movie to like prevent this kid from getting railroaded and then we get uh back to the presence where or, like uh, neff has been wrapping up his uh his monologue into the recorder and he turns around and he's like pouring sweat and he can see keys has already has been standing in the office mm-hmm. for, for probably as he says long enough hello keys <laughs> and I, it's just the end of this movie is just so heartbreaking to me because like the real love story in this movie is between keys and neff oh absolutely and it's like and then like they says walter you're all washed up a love that was never meant to be, truly. Yeah, it's, and like he, you know, he tries to leave the office or head to Mexico, but he collapses at the door. You won't make it to the elevator. And then, and then he's like, he takes out his cigarette, his blood sports cigarette, and his match. And then Keys does the thing Neff had done for him the entire movie. He lights his cigarette for him. Mm-hmm. And then the really great like final lines in the movie, where he says, uh, "Neff says to Keys, uh, you know why you couldn't figure it out? If I, you know why you couldn't figure this out, Keys? The guy you were looking for was too close." right across the desk from you. And then Keyes says to him so heartbreakingly, closer than that, Walter. Oh, And he lights like... a cigarette for him and he goes, I love you too. <laughs> the end. Great ending. Such a good ending. It's just like an absolute classic. I guess my closing thoughts on uh, Double Indemnity is just once again this idea of that will be explored further in Sunset Boulevard, this like American fatalism that runs counter to the kind of you know, like the the way the American character is usually presented and thought about in films, like this this cuts so much deeper to the bone. And I think it really is uh, Billy Wilder's outsider perspective on the kind of perversity and absurdity 
of just human nature mm-hmm. and, and the events exist like outside of anyone's control, which runs very counter to how we like to think of ourselves in America and as sort of agent as in America as sort of agents of our own destiny. And once again, like I have to think that this has something to do with the fact of Billy Wilder's own experiences, seeing like the rise of fascism in Europe as a from a Polish Jewish family and then having pretty much half of his family killed in the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So like I, I just think like yeah, he has he has a fundamental understanding of like the this huge reservoir of like irrationality and darkness that just exists like under this algae thin surface of motivation, reason, and you know what we think of as human psychology. And I think like yeah, it's the kind of post World War Two idea of like you know the true evil that can like lurk in people's like, yeah hearts. otherwise normal people yeah and just like bringing that home, transposing it back onto the people who like to think of themselves as the heroes of that whole war of being like, no, you're no different. I mean, like the whole genre, I feel like of film noir is kind of about that. Like, yeah. It's about, it's about like it, it, film noir was like the vehicle to express these kind of like unspoken, unseen, like, but like still very present, like fissures in American society and in like, you know, individual psychology of like sexuality, um, uh, the depravity and just like the, these these unseen unspoken motivations that like you know that that crack the facade of what we present of ourselves to the world mm-hmm. and uh, lead to disaster and yeah like I, I i can't help but separate that from billy wilder's own personal history and that of you know europe and america and world war ii and then this whole idea that like this whole generation i know i know double indemnity came out while world war ii was still going on and it was written before world war ii but like this whole post-war world of this, this entire generation of like young American men who like went through that experience, and then if they like you know survived it, uh, came home to inherit the entire galaxy, like to be like you know the kings of the world. But we're still like they were like you know all united in this experience of like kind of already like becoming like masters of the universe by becoming killers, mm-hmm. like of having killed people or seen people killed, and then like coming into this post-war world of peace and prosperity of which everything was available to them. But again, like, you're still stuck with this essential existential boredom. Yeah. And, like, from that produces violence. Like, I'm actually just reading Cormac McCarthy's new book, The Passenger. And I just read yesterday, there's a, a scene where he's, like, one character's talking about how society's really become doomed when everyone gets bored. Mm-hmm. And then, like, at a certain point, people will get so bored that everything will snap and that you'll be astonished at how quickly, like, all of the, the, the former strictures and institutions that governed normal life go away. Mm-hmm. Because, like, the, the, the true madness is born from boredom rather than anything else. Yeah, the boredom of, like, comfort and, yeah. you know, everything being okay. And, like, and hence you get murder as an intellectual exercise mm-hmm. in double indemnity. Harper speaking. I'm talking from the bedroom of Norma Desmond. Don't bother with a rewrite, man. Take this direct. Ready? As day breaks over the murder house. Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. But you'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. Gloria Swanson, one of the great personalities of this generation in a role that comes to an actress once in a lifetime. Rising to the heights, William Holden creates a startling portrayal. And a new star is born in Sunset Boulevard, Miss Nancy Olsen. 
Joe? Where are you? What's this all about? Why don't you come out and see for yourself? The address is 10,086 Sunset Boulevard. Yes, come out to see for yourself the film that reaches a new milestone of dramatic daring. The film that every critic says is a giant among motion pictures. All right. So, uh, to introduce Sunset Boulevard, I thought I would just begin with a tweet from our former president, Donald Trump. (laughs) Uh, In February 2020, he tweeted the following. So, Parasite won Best Picture at the 92nd Academy Awards. And then he went on to lament that uh, they don't make movies like Sunset Boulevard anymore. And he cited it as one of his favorite movies. And he said he had screamed it, screened it multiple times at the White House Family Theater during his presidency. Which I think, <laughs> look, it's true. They don't make classic movies like Sunset Boulevard anymore. But the fact that Sunset Boulevard is one of Donald Trump's favorite movies is just so perfect to me because yeah. he is Norma Desmond in every possible respect. He's Normo Desmond. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and you know, Double Indemnity is a movie, like I said, about the kind of mercenary character of Americans and this kind of grim fatalism that determines uh, that, that we're all sort of trapped in. Sunset Boulevard is about uh, is similar to those, and it contains elements of that, but it, it introduces the other main feature of American life and character, our obsession with fame, youth, and celebrity. And Sunset Boulevard, I really regard as probably like one of the like one of, if not the first, truly meta movies that are about movies at mm-hmm. every level of its production. Like everything is a is self referential about the movie industry, yeah, and about movies themselves, and about what these sort of these collective dreams that we experience and, and seek and, and, and desire to live in, it's mm-hmm. about like sort of the danger of that. And, yeah, and the evil how they can that. turn into nightmares yeah. quickly. <laughs> um, so like, uh, Sunset Boulevard is often described as a film noir, and we're pairing it with Double Indemnity, which to me is like the, the ultimate film noir movie. But I, I don't think that quite does it. I, yeah. like, I, I, it's very hard to pin this down. It's like, it's a little bit of a satire, it's a little bit of a noir, um, but I think really, if you were to categorize this movie, the closest thing it, it is, is like an old universal horror monster movie. Exactly. It's like... It's a, a vampire movie. Or it's like a, Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast yes, kind of almost. Yes, absolutely. It, it, this is a monster movie of which the monster is a woman over the age of 30. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the, yeah, like, it's like Norma Desmond is like Dracula, basically. Mm-hmm. And like, I think, I think if, we, if we begin to, our understanding of the movie as a monster, as a sort of a very gothic monster movie, I think that's where you can begin. And of course, uh, you know, the movie begins, hey, this is Sunset Boulevard. You're probably wondering how I ended up here. Yeah. <laughs> freeze. The, <laughs> freeze frame. <laughs> how the hell did this happen? No, the, the, movie, the movie begins with the, uh, the great opening scene of William Holden's character, Joe Gillis, floating face down dead in a swimming pool shot from below. I have a little note here. Uh, Wilder was adamant that the corpse of Joe Gillis be seen from the bottom of the pool, but creating the effect was difficult. The camera was placed inside a specially constructed box and lowered underwater, but the result disappointed Wilder, who insisted on further experiments. The shot was finally achieved by placing a mirror on the bottom of the pool and filming Holden's reflection from above with the distorted image of the policeman standing around the pool and forming a backdrop. I did that for a school project in like fifth grade after I saw this movie. Oh, you or, like, recreated sixth grade. the Joe Gillis? Yeah, I put like a tiny mirror. Oh, in, wow. Like, a, and like uh, my teacher was like, 
what the fuck? <laughs> and I'm like, IMDb trivia. Thank you. <laughs> so you were just saying that you did not like Sunset Boulevard the first time you saw it. Yeah, because like I have always loved movies like so much. When I was like 10 or 11, I, I Googled like most classic movies like and I just like or I think I found like Quentin Tarantino's list of favorite movies and I was like watching my way through them and I got to Sunset Boulevard and I was like I don't get it you know I was kind of bored by it and you know obviously I rewatched in high school and I was like oh okay <laughs> this is like and rewatching it for the podcast I like the ending I started crying at the ending. I was like, oh my God, this is just like one of the best movies ever, truly. Just, I'm getting chills even thinking about the ending. I mean, yeah, like, and, and the reason I say that these two movies are not optional is because if you consider yourself a fan of movies or American movies in particular, these two, in, in these two movies, you can discern the DNA of just about every one of your favorite directors. Mm -hmm. Like what they, like in Sunset Boulevard, you know, it's like David Lynch is all over it. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's the Double Indemnity, it's the Coen brothers, but like they just, the DNA of like every every good American filmmaker or any, or even international filmmaker that came after it is just so deeply infused in these two mm -hmm. movies. Godard, like yeah. all those new wave guys. And like I feel like Sunset Boulevard, the narration, like going back to like the cynicism of Wilder. It this movie was like ten years before French people invented like respecting cinema, <laughs> yeah. and so yeah, yeah. like yeah. Buster. There's a scene where Buster fucking uh, Keaton is yep. sitting in Norman Desmond's parlor playing bridge. Uh, yeah, playing bridge, and um, this like fucking like ingrate is like yeah these these wax, the wax work works. like fucking freaks. <laughs> Like, bro, that is Buster Keaton, man. Like, you can't be calling him a waxwork. And like, you know, the movie is 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 about movies. It's about it's also about writers as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of this movie is about writers. Um, and it contains like sort of a, you know, I it reminds me of The Shining a lot as well. Oh yeah, and there's absolutely. lots of lots of scenes where like sort of bisected or offset by mirrored reflections of people. Norma Desmond is often seen in a mirror or looking at herself in a mirror. But it's also the idea like like Jack Torrance. Joe Gillis as a writer is sort of like, A, he's narrating the movie as a dead man and continues to narrate the story after he's like the entire movie as a ghost, essentially, you know, keying into this idea that like there, there's no altering your fate, but also like introducing this idea that maybe he's changing the story and the movie you're seeing as he writes it himself. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we meet we meet Joe Gillis played by um, Joe Gillis played by uh, William, the great William Holden, who would uh, also star in Billy Wilder's. Uh, he was in Sabrina and Stalag 17, which is another one of my absolute favorite mm -hmm. movies. Basically, if a movie is set in a Nazi POW camp or a train, it, <laughs> chances that I'm liking it very high. So uh, Joe Gillies is a down-on-his-luck writer. Mm -hmm. He's sort of like hit the skids trying to sell his screenplays, hasn't had a studio job in a while. He's being hassled by collection agents. His car is about to be repossessed. He's parking it down the street to skirt there. Um, you know, he's like, he's just desperate because he needs, he, he needs a car. I mean, look, he's an L.A. guy. And if you don't have a yeah, car, it's in like LA, he says, a car it's like is my like, legs are cut off. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I love, like, you can see, like, the evolution of Wilder's camera in this. Like, how it, it's so floaty and kind of, like... So dreamlike. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, the, fir the very first shot, those cars, like, gunning it down the street, and then it flips around, like, this, like, awesome, like, whip pan. And, like, both in Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard, he uses a lot of, like, um, like double exposures fading in and out of two different scenes. Mm -hmm. And, like, yeah, it, 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 like I said, it, it really it contributes to this very dreamlike feeling, and it works especially well in Sunset Boulevard, because this is a movie about how movies are dreams, and, mm -hmm. like, and how 
people who are sort of fated to live in them are become a kind of living death. They become kind of an un, like an undead presence, as we'll see in Norma Desmond. So uh, Joe Gillis is basically like he, he's one week away from just packing it in and moving back to Dayton, Ohio, which yeah. is like, if you're in Hollywood and you have to move back to Ohio, like just yeah, kill yourself. Exactly. Like, this is the fate worse than death. Not even a week, like minutes away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he's going like, he meets his producer friend, uh, Sheldrake and tries to pitch him on his script called bases loaded. Yeah. <laughs> about a rookie shortstop <laughs> who's from a bad neighborhood and he did a job with some guys and now they're going to have to blackmail him to throw the world series or something like that. Yeah. And then the great scene were like, and then, it, you know, he says, I think this is kind of a, an Alan Ladd picture, Tyrone Power. And yeah. once again, like, can you see just, Ty Power as a shortstop? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, like, it's one of the many names that are dropped in this movie. And you mentioned Buster Keaton's cameo. Like, it's names and faces being dropped. Because, you know, this movie is all about, like, you know, it's basically what. <laughs> <laughs> what Babylon was like trying to be about. Yeah, it's like, exactly. you know, it, it's something that's obsessed movies like since Sunset Boulevard is like do- documenting the shift from silent movies to talkies mm-hmm. and like this bygone era of like all of the stars of the silent era, like what becomes of them yeah. and like how they, you know, like I said, become these kind of vampires who are like encased in amber, like they're, they're ageless, but like absent the spotlight, it, it curdles into this kind of, yeah, like I said, this vampirism, this, this, this zombie like existence. <laughs> they bring in, uh, uh, the, the producer uh, brings in his uh, script girl. Mm-hmm. Which is like, God, what a job to have. Yeah. You know, are there still script girls around? I'm sure there are, but it, was, it probably wasn't. You have your own, you're in your, your, your you have the, the, the writer's hallway, you know, the writer's bullpen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they're like, oh, what do you got on bases loaded? And like, he comes in and trashes his script in front yeah. of him without knowing he's there. Well, the, the producer guy is like, um, this is Miss Kramer. And she's like, hi, I'm Betty Schaefer. <laughs> Which I love. Like, he doesn't yeah. even fucking know her name. <laughs> And uh, also a very funny joke where he says, you'd have turned, uh, uh, Gilly says to him, or he says to Betty, he says to Betty, he goes, you'd have turned down Gone with the Wind. And then the producer says, no, that was me. He goes, I said, who wants to see a Civil War picture? (laughs) Um, I'm sure that got a big laugh at the time. (laughs) So like, you know, his, his scripts aren't selling. He goes, to, he goes to his office at the, the great Schwab's pharmacy. And I mean, another, another bygone thing about American mid-century life is that like, the pharmacy was like a cool place to hang out. And yeah, it's lunch. like they had, they had bodegas in L.A. back then. <laughs> they were all called pharmacies. Yeah. yeah. You, could get, you could get cigarettes. You could get an egg and cheese, mm-hmm. Joe Gillis style. Um, so basically, it's like putting out an SOS, calling all his friends, calls his agent, and discovers, as many people do, that they have no juice left yeah. in town they have got no no one wants uh-huh. to pick up their phone call he's like he's, just, he's begging his agent for $300 just to like have a car and he's like no I sure I could give you the money but like hey some of the best things I've ever written have been written on an empty stomach and like he goes this is great now you'll, now you'll have to sit at the typewriter and write and he just basically says like hey buddy you ever consider getting a new agent like, yeah <laughs> and then he's he's driving away he's like i'm such a fucking failure i'm gonna i gotta go back to that copywriting job at the dayton morning edition like and then he's in his car and he sees the two repossessing guys this is in a time when um in la there were about only like 500 cars on the road at a time (laughs) (laughs) this is before the draw distance was like higher than like gta 5's draw distance (laughs) and um you just he sees the two repossessors and they're like isn't that that guy? He's driving his car, and a chase ensues. Chase ensues down Sunset Boulevard, mm-hmm. and like he sees what he thinks is an abandoned driveway, and pulls into it, and like you know he, he ditches them, and like hides his car in this like dilapidated garage, mm-hmm. and then he is at the the mansion 
of one Norma Desmond. Him walking up to the mansion is when I was like, oh, this is so like Cocteau. This is so like yes. silent movie, yes. dreamy, like, you know, approaching the evil castle kind of, you know, like. And he, know, said, he says like he says neglected houses take on kind of an, like a, like an evil character to them. Mm-hmm. And like, you know. The mansion, like Norma Desmond herself, like she lives like she, like she lives like the fucking monsters. Yeah, like once again underscoring that she is a vampire, and he sort of wanders onto this property, like this dilapidated, beautiful, like empty swimming pool. And again, like the similarities between Norma Desmond's mansion and Dracula's castle in the original Universal, like Bela Lugosi Dracula. Is like is very very like it's very apt because like the there big are, stairs there that, are rats in her swimming pool yeah just like that like Dracula's crypt and it's like this place frozen in time that's just like you know like it was once grand and it still is but like you know once again out of the spotlight it's just become like dilapidated and taken on this very sinister cast to it and I like I think this is one of the things that really contributes to the dreamlike quality of the movie is that it's a movie that takes place in a time like the 50s that or like the late 40s early 50s that we think of as like that was so long ago but them in the movie are like they're like looking at this car he's like looking at this car from the 30s and he's like that's like the oldest car I've ever yeah it's seen. like an artifact yeah and it's like kind of this russian nesting doll of like this guy from the 50s looking back and this audience from the 50s looking back at this stuff that must that was like this stuff is like ancient i mean like a line from christine when he first sees the car and he's like this thing is 20 years old that's basically an antique and it's like that applies to everything in this movie basically um and yeah like i I think a russian nesting doll is like a very good way to like understand this movie especially when uh, norma desmond played by gloria swanson is introduced because like it's this meaning within a meaning because uh, Gloria Swanson herself, I mean, the character of Norma Desmond is based on like, you know, uh, Clara Bow or Mary Pickford or Gloria Swanson herself as this like, as a young woman, a great star of like the silent era of movies. And, you know, playing this very like perverse and like very like mean portrait, like portrait of like a, a, a bygone starlet who's mm-hmm. like, you know, well, well, you know, like no one's picked, no one's. No one's calling her on the phone or offering her jobs either. But like, you know, the whole idea is that she lives in this mansion where she still believes that she is the the greatest star of them all. Yeah. And Uh, her like acting style in this, how she like acts is very like silent movie. Like we didn't need words. I had eyes. Yeah. Everything I needed with my eyes. A lot of Kristen Wiig eyes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And she really does, too. Mm -hmm. It is. It is a great performance. We also have to talk about the third lead in this movie. Her butler, wink, wink, mm-hmm. Max, played by the uh, the actor and film director Eric von Stroheim, who mm-hmm. did, you know the Grand Illusion, Greed, yeah, Greed, and had starred in many movies himself. I think his first movie was actually he was an extra on D.W. Griffith's Intolerance. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, but w- one more thing about Norma Desmond's monster mansion is that the real the house that they filmed it in was actually uh, one owned by John Paul Getty. And built for one of his wives. Oh shit! And they like apparently like uh, he allowed the studio to film at this mansion with the proviso, the, the provision that they build the swimming pool. <laughs> so they like uh, the the uh, Paramount built John Paul Getty a swimming pool, the swimming pool that you see Joe Gillis in. They built that for John Paul Getty as payment for filming this movie. One That's of his, one, of his, one of his many many <laughs> mansions. Um, and then once again, like what, what's the first thing that he he's introduced to Norma Desmond, and she thinks that he is there to uh, deliver a coffin for her pet chimp. Yeah. 
<laughs> and when you see that the, the, the arm of that ape uh, fall, like the dead arm, the dead limp arm of this ape fall from underneath this like swaddling clothing that she uh, has for him, uh, it's just once again like so universal so monster movie. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird and strange, and like they have this like solemn funeral procession for the chimp, and she wa- he watches them bury it in her front garden, <laughs> yeah, in a baby coffin, and it's like it's so apt for her to be introduced like this in this like funeral march that because this whole movie is kind of a funeral march for like golden era hall golden age hollywood and like not a happy one not like a new orleans style funeral march it's very like somber and fucked um he compares the house to miss havisham from uh joe gillis does he compares the house to miss havisham from great expectations Mm -hmm. and you know and then you know he says like he recognized her and says hey like weren't you norma desmond like uh, you you were in pictures. You used to be big. And she goes, I still am big. It's the pictures that got small. <laughs> One of the best lines yes. ever, truly. And like, you know, um, and he, she, he mentions that he's a writer for movies. And she's like, write, write, write. More words, words, words. You kill the pictures. And, uh, and he goes, like, that's why they sell popcorn. So you can stuff them in your ears. You don't have to listen. <laughs> but as soon as she picks up that he's a, he's a writer, she'd be like, the wheels begin turning her in her head. And she basically offers him a job editing this <laughs> horrible movie that she spent the last decades composing like 800 pages of her take on the biblical story of Salome. Mm-hmm. And, but like the gears are turning in his head as well because he's thinking like, Hey, like I don't even have, I can't even afford a sandwich. Yeah. And this crazy old woman is going to like, you know, and again, like he never gets paid either. Mm-hmm. And like, here's the, you know, once again, like for this movie to come out in the 1950s, I mean, this is, this is a movie about a young man who gets groomed by a vampire to be like, yes. a, like, a, like a rent boy, essentially. It's like such, it, there's so much age gap discourse happening in this movie because <laughs> then he does the same thing to Betty Schaefer who's almost. Like 20, who's 22. Yeah, 22. And he's like, that's I, smart. You get, it's, I should look up how old William Holden was in this movie. I guarantee yeah. you he's like <laughs> 15 years younger than I am now, but he looks like 60 years old. <laughs> yeah, he looks like five years younger than Gloria Swanson. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, oh, another great line where uh, he says, like, she needs a replacement ape. And he says, maybe that, maybe her ape was the great grandson of King Kong, which I <laughs> yeah. think is such a, once again, like all this like referential Hollywood stuff, but like their home, home, her whole house is just this like museum. And <laughs> I, I love her cigarette holder. It's like a ring on her finger that was like a little clamp on it. And she smokes it like that. She's also very into the Zodiac as well. She's a, she's basically a Bushwick girl. She's, she's yeah, a, pretty much. She's a Brooklyn witch, basically. Mm-hmm. She has, um, she goes thrifting. She's one of those, she dresses like one of those TikTok people that's like, hey, let me dress up for a funeral and then dresses like a moron. Like, <laughs> without him, he, he agrees to take the job, but then very quickly, without even realizing it, he becomes like her boarder. Yeah. Like he, he, like he can't even leave the house. Like, as soon as he passes through its gates of this Dracula castle, he's trapped there. He wakes up after the first night of sleeping there. And all his, yeah. All his stuff is there. And which is explained by, like, um, you know, Max bringing it there. But it's like, that would, that's so crazy. Cause, yeah. Um, also, he tells, Max tells him when he first goes into the guest room, I made the bed for you this afternoon. And he's like, how'd you know I would be staying here this afternoon? And it Once just they, doesn't yeah. answer. Yeah, yeah. Cause, like, <laughs> you know, Max, uh, he, he is her Renfield, you mm-hmm. know, and he is just sort of like, he, he he knew the script before it even happened, you know, mm-hmm. another, another victim. Uh, so, you know, go into this like 
you know, like uh, Max also plays the organ in his house, another big Dracula tell. The rats in the pool. And this idea of like movies is a kind of living death. Yeah. And this house being like the physical manifestation of that. Then she begins paying his rent. Yeah. (laughs) And he goes, let's not be small about matters. We won't keep books. And like she doesn't pay him either, but like he's living in a mansion, and and then very soon she begins buying him clothes and jewelry, and you know he he wants the money, so he can't really leave, but he doesn't really get paid either. Yeah, he just becomes her full time companion, and they like sit around their house, they watch her old movies, mm-hmm. the scene where like she like she, they pull up an oil painting and she has like a, a projection screen, and they watch her old silent movies, like Gloria Swanson's actual old silent mm-hmm. movies, directed by Von Stronheim. I yeah, think. yeah, we get another layer of this nesting doll yeah. in terms of like the self referential nature of everything we're seeing on screen. Is yeah, and it also what's better than just watching movies in your house? You know why? Why yeah. leave? That's exactly. She says, um, "It's so nice to watch movies in your house. It's way better than leaving." Like, <laughs> and in in the silent, the glorious Swanson silent movie that they're watching, that presented as Norma Desmond, in the dialogue cards, like you know, she's she's doing the the acting with her eyes, and I, it's always stuck with me. One of the dialogue cards that they show in the silent film is, "Cast out this wicked dream that has seized my heart." Mm-hmm. And I think that's like a very good like stand-in for the whole movie about like uh, so the, the, the dream of celebrity and the dream of movies and the dream of youth too. Yes, absolutely. And then we get the scene where her wax works. Where like you know, he just like you know, he he's a young guy who like wants to be on the make, and then he just like he's he then very immediately becomes like entrapped in this world where like he is fifty years younger than everyone around him. Yeah, playing bridge with all these like and. You know, you mentioned the Buster Keaton's cameo in this yeah. scene, which is so great. But like, I don't know about you, but the first time I saw this movie, Buster Keaton says two lines of dialogue. It's the same word twice of him losing at bridge. And he just goes, pass, pass. pass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, there's something so disturbing and jarring about hearing Buster Keaton as opposed to just seeing his expressions and yeah. his stunts. It's, it's crazy. It's like, it shouldn't be as upsetting, is it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like then his uh, as they're playing bridge like the the collection agents find his car and like Max is like he is not here right now, mm-hmm. um, but his car gets repossessed finally. So like now mm-hmm. he's really trapped. He's truly stuck. He is truly stuck. And, and he's like, this... why do you need a car? We have a car. And it's this huge like hearse like fucking yeah. Like... And there's this like also this element of like these parts of the mansion and these parts of her life that he sees when he first gets there, like the empty pool with rats in it, the car that's like broken on down. Blocks, like, yeah. yeah, on blocks. When she mentions them, because she's like, we have a car, you don't need to use your car. Um, when she mentions that, the car in the next scene, the very next scene, like a dream, is like totally fine, like woken back up, like yeah. ready to go. Well, you know, it, it's just like, yeah, exactly. Like the house begins to come back to life as Norma, through Joe Gillis is able to find a mark or like a canvas on which she can project this idea that she's going to make her not come back, my return. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, then you find out that like Max, her butler, 
writes like hundreds of fan letters to her. Every yeah, week. every single day. Yeah, every yeah, yeah, single yeah. day, and mails them to her that she reads, and she's like, "The public has been waiting my return. They, yeah. they, they, they send me letters by the thousands every day." He's like, "Why aren't there any locks in this house?" And, no, but like, but and it's, like, it's huh? like for reasons that will become clear later. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and then another detail that is that there are no doorknobs or locks on any of the doors. You can yeah. see through this like little circle through all the doors, which is another great detail. Which is like again, he has no privacy. Mm-hmm. It's just every aspect of his life now is at the beck and call of this insane woman. Mm-hmm. But as you said, like, as the house begins to come back to life, for, for reasons that will become clear later, Max is the one that, like, basically covers for her mm-hmm. and, like, protects her and, like, crafts this illusion that she still demands to live in. But, she, like, that's not good enough because he's been doing it for too long and, like, she needs a younger man. She needs, like, she needs a, a fresh canvas on which to, like, to recreate this dream reality it's that like she can live in. Max and, is kind of, has become one of the, like, the candelabra in yeah, the Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Be our, be our guest. Yeah, and the waxworks are like oil paintings. They're dressed like they're in oil paintings on the wall, yeah. too. It's like, truly, everything else is just part of this house and part of this dream, except for this young guy who needs, who she's like, gonna suck the life out of, basically. And like, and then we see, uh, like, you know, very soon after a scene of him getting out of a swimming pool. And she's like, let me dry you off. You know, but like the pool is like mm-hmm. it's back to being a pool again. It's not full of the rats and dead leaves. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the, the physical reality of the house begins to uh, come back to life as he indulges for cynical reasons. Um, he indulges the fantasy life of this vampire. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where they um, take the car to... Um like a men's clothing store because she's like i love this yeah and this like greasy john waters pencil mustache guy (laughs) is like um yeah you know the camel fur is um is fine but the vacuna is even softer and as long as the lady's paying why not do the vacuna and then just like (laughs) and then it like uh, fades out and she's like that's a horrible horrible shirt you're wearing i'm so (laughs) sick of seeing you around the house in it and he's like it's it's fine all right because like look he, he he likes living in this mansion rent free, mm-hmm. and he likes you know ducking collectors and like you know having some some semblance that he's still because like you know this is his fantasy too that like yeah. this is his last squeeze at being involved in Hollywood or being in the industry or being connected to movies or having anyone interested in what he has to write at all. But when she begins to dress him and buy him a jewelry, like this is when he really starts feeling like a hoe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it's the clothes that really send him over the edge. And I love the scene where, like the like you said, the John Waters guy, because like he, he zooms in close as the guy leans in, and he's like, "As long as the lady's paying for it, sir." Because like, there's nothing more shameful yeah. than the idea of having some old woman yeah. buy you clothes for you know, let's just say, yeah, he's being seen as attention her hoe. favors like, yeah. around town. So like, th- this is when he begins to bristle at it, and it's it's New Year's Eve, and she buys him a tux and tails. And like you know, like a, a like a you know platinum uh, wallet chain, you know he's like a skater, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she like she says, oh, like uh, Max is like, you have not forgotten about Madame's New Year's Eve party, and he thinks the Buster Keaton's gonna be there. Yeah, he's like, wax just like, are coming. It's like a full band and just him. Yeah, <laughs> and she's like, Valentino said there's something like tiles for the tango. And this is finally, he, he reaches his breaking point and like, you know, he's just like, I can't do this. And he leaves her, you know, and she's like, you know, devastated. She's in full froth over this. And he goes out to like, you know, meet 
he's like, you know, people his own age, people who used to be his friends, and like he he shows up overdressed to like the cool yeah, kids party. He goes to a Brooklyn house party <laughs> in a suit and tails. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he runs into his friend Artie, who's like an assistant director who's like in the biz. And his fiance is Betty, the script girl from earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, they have uh, she's like, oh, like, you know, I feel bad about um, <laughs> sticking a knife in your back. Basically. Yeah. But she's like, I, you know, I pulled out your old scripts that the studio had on file. And like, you know, there's one in particular that like, you know, interested me or just rather a, a six page flashback that was the only good part of it. Like, you know, they, they form kind of a connection and like, but he's 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 getting ready to just like he asks Artie, look, can I just crash on your couch? Like I'm in between places. So he calls he calls the mansion. And this is before he even calls them, my favorite beat, maybe, or one of my favorite beats in the whole movie, the most like Lynchian kind of, you know, Lynch before Lynch is he goes sees the phone and there are these two blonde women on like holding the phone up to their ears, cackling like hyenas for like a minute straight. Like, not even saying anything into the phone, just laughing. And he's like, when you two are done, can you, <laughs> can I use the phone? And they just nod. It's like such a funny beat of like, you know, young people laughing. And he says, even in the voiceover, I needed to hear people laugh again. Yeah. And then he goes and like these two women are laughing. And in his mind, he's like, Jesus Christ, shut up. <laughs> like, <laughs> what have you got to laugh about? Yeah. You're, you're not a star. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, he calls, he calls Max and he's like, Max, could you just, uh, get my typewriter and the clothes I came with and just like drop it off or whatever. And he's like, I cannot right now. Madame is not well. And basically as soon as he left her New Year's Eve party for him alone, she tried to kill herself. Yeah. 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 And like earlier Max had alluded to the fact that like she's unstable and like they can't have razors or pills or guns in the house or anything yeah. like that because she's, you know, these are, I guess, uh, suicidal gestures for attention really. But, like, yeah. It's, she's it's, a BPD it's, queen. Yeah. It's her way of controlling people. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as he hears that, he like his aborted attempt at escape is, is, is confounded. Yeah. And he, he immediately heads back to the house feeling full of guilt and my the most disturbing line maybe in the entire movie is here and it's when max tells him don't run up the stairs because the band can't know and the band is yes. still playing to an yes. empty fucking like ballroom and it's just you know, this idea that like the, the the max character as like as a, as a as, as you'll find out is like is the the vision of things to come for Joe Gillis if he doesn't yeah. get out. A man who no longer has any life or personality outside of the very carefully manicured maintenance of the fantasy life of this absolute monster. Mm-hmm. And now there's this band just playing to this empty fucking ballroom just so that she can maintain the small dignity of these like band members not knowing that she just tried to kill herself. And of course, and then like... <laughs> There's nothing like a, a suicide attempt to get someone in your bed. Yeah. Because like, it's just like, yeah, uh, guilt is a great reason to have sex with someone, folks. Yeah. And of course, like he, he succumbs and there's like, you know, another very, uh, you know, Dracula-like moment of, of her embracing him. Mm-hmm. A lot of close-ups of hands in this yes. movie with like people in the background. Now, I, 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 I referred to Norma Desmond as, you know, a, a vampire, a Count Dracula, a monster, kind of a grotesque, the female grotesque. But the thing is, though, like, is she really a monster? Like, because the more you watch this movie, the more sympathetic a character she becomes. Yeah, I like you feel so fucking bad for her because like Hollywood really did like chew her up and spit her out. Like the second she turned like what whatever, like 30, the 19. second. Yeah, this, yeah, truly like the second the switch to like sound, because like 
it's it is Gloria Swanson, and this I assume this kind of like did happen to her to some degree. Actually, I have a detail here. Uh, we were just talking in Barbara Stanwyck in uh, Double Indemnity. Uh, she was an orphan. She was a ward of the foster care system who basically became uh, like a Ziegfeld Follies girl to becoming like discovered and become a film starlet. But she was literally like basically an orphan bought by a Hollywood studio. Oh my God. And she was at the premiere of this movie and was so affected by it that she fell to her like knees essentially and kissed like the hem of Gloria Swanson's dress oh. because of how like powerful and how moved she was by this performance and by like the entire like the, the meaning of this movie and like about, you know, what Hollywood does to women and mm -hmm. like how it turns them into monsters mm -hmm. once that no longer has any use for them. And the meaning, like it also goes back to Miss Schaefer at the very beginning said she didn't like Bases Loaded because she thinks movies should mean something yeah. and say something. Yeah. And that really is like a, a, the indictment of the Hollywood like system also comes back to that in this movie because... It's like, what's this for? It's for it's so that we can make fucking bases loaded <laughs> and shit like that. Yeah, all this like all these broken people, this trail of like death yeah, exactly. and misery is so that we can get like fucking bases loaded. But yeah, like uh, like like legions disgorged from bus stations from like coming from Iowa and Ohio and all over the country are just fed into the you know tossed into the maw of the dream factory yeah which the they meat just, grinder uh, they're just consumed and shat out and then like but then like you know but then like the price of that is like you know or the reward for that is being having like being able to live past your own death yeah and uh, I well I just said that she's a sympathetic character but then we get like a truly horrifying and grotesque scene of Gloria Swanson doing a Charlie Chaplin routine her Joe Gillis as kind of like she tr she tries to entertain him by doing all of her old silent movie like Bathing Beauty and then this whole thing, she has the little mustache and she's dressed like the tramp and she's got the cane and she's doing this whole Chaplin routine for him and he's like so bored and horrified by it it's mm -hmm. like again another really disturbing scene that's yeah. like this you know, like nesting doll reflection of movies back at themselves and like i the thing that was really like disturbing about this scene for me is that you just know that that was the routine glorious once and did for like execs when she was like 17 or 16 and like they were just hornily watching like oh wow you really are just like the tramp now why don't you come over here sweetheart <laughs> i just sit on my neck i sit yeah. on my knee <laughs> So, uh, so basically, by this point, like she's already um, convinced herself that her script for Salome <laughs> is going to be the next hot thing, and she tells it only Cecil B. DeMille can direct me. Mm -hmm. And Gloria Swanson was in several of Cecil B. DeMille's actual movies; mm -hmm. and was a star in them. Uh, at this point, uh, someone from Cecil B. DeMille's office calls, asking after her. And she, of course, is like, it's an assistant. So yeah. she brushes him off and decides that I'll just head to the stew myself. No, she says, um, I'll talk to them when I'm ready. And then the narration is like, three days later, she decided she was ready. <laughs> like, <laughs> like she couldn't wait. And we get this like, you know, heartbreaking scene. Uh, they drive their giant hearse, uh, the longest car in, <laughs> in existence. <Yeah. laughs> It takes five minutes for it to get through the gates of Paramount. Yeah. And like, they're like, you know, they show up and they're like, Max is like, 
we are here to see Mr. DeMille. And they're like, do you have an appointment, sir? And he's like, no appointment necessary. This is this Norma Desmond here. To see. And then it's like the one ancient guy with yeah. the security. And he's like, she's like, Jonesy, Jonesy, you remember me? And he's like, oh, my God, it's Norma Desmond. Oh, please, you can let her in. No, you know, and like, and by the way, uh, Jonesy should absolutely lose his job for letting her in. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> And I mean, this this movie is kind of like a, a pro-union movie in a way, because you see all these ancient men, like this ancient guy in the rafters, like still has his yeah. fucking job on like the Paramount set, like controlling the lights. And he recognizes her. I forgot what he said his name is. It's like Stink Eye or something. Hawkeye or <laughs> yeah. something like that. Um, so like, and then we get retreated to uh, uh, Cecil B. Once again, like Buster Keaton, Cecil B. DeMille playing himself. Mm-hmm. And do you know what the B stands for in Cecil B. DeMille, by the way? No, what a- I looked it up. Blount. Blount? Blunt with an O. <laughs> Literally. Cecil Blunt DeMille. Cecil Blunt DeMille. <laughs> smoking that Norman Desmond pack. I'm smoking that shit that made Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> um, I'm smoking that shit that made the picture small. <laughs> 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 um, and then like they're like uh, his assistant is like uh, Mr. Bill uh, Norma Desmond here to see you and he's like what like Jesus and he's like uh, should I get he goes should I give her the brush off and he goes no like 30 million of her fans have already given her the brush off and yeah. like there's a scene where DeMille is like really trying to show some respect or deference to her but like you know she's coming in there thinking that like he's like oh god is this about her awful screenplay yeah and he, you know he, he wants to sort of still treat her like a star or sort of um, humor her to a degree. And she comes in on set, and there's a great scene where like she has this huge peacock feather in her hat, which gets grouses up by a microphone that they're moving mm-hmm. across, the, across the set. And she sort of like swats it harassed away. by it. Get that out of here. <laughs> you know, I just need my eyes to act. Yeah. And then uh, the Hawkeye or Hog Face. Or a Hawkeye, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hawkeye. It's like, this Desmond over here. He's like one of the lighting guys up in the rafters. And he points the, like one of the big like Klieg lights on her. And she's just like, you know, she's, you know, uh, like, like in amber, like, you know, she's bathed in the, the glow once again. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then people start to notice her and they're like, oh, that's Norma Desmond. I thought she was dead. I thought, <laughs> that's Norma Desmond. And then meanwhile, DeMille is like, uh, they're like, yeah, someone, someone in, by the way, the David Lynch connection in this movie, the guy who calls from DeMille's office to Norma Desmond, because as it's revealed, they want to rent her giant long car for yeah, a their movie. Hey, we needed it. We just wanted to rent her giant car because um, we're making the 50s version of the window liquor video and we need... <laughs> <laughs> the name of that guy who's like the, the car procurer for Paramount Pictures is named Gordon Cole. Oh, shit. I didn't even notice that. Gordon Cole, David Lynch's <laughs> character from Twin Peaks. He's, of course, decided this movie is, you know, one of, one of his favorites and oh, yeah. very influential on him. So you got to think that, like, that, 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 that's, that must be a nod. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, like, all the weird old guys in the Paramount lot remember her. As soon as they sign that light on her, everyone begins to notice her. And they're like, oh, Norman Desmond, Norman Desmond, you know. They like, flock uh, to her. They flock to her. And then, once again, it's sort of like the monster lives, you know, like uh, the, the, the fame flame is rekindled as everyone notices her. Mm-hmm. And for a second, the dream is still, it's, yeah. you know, revived. And then, and then what does DeMille say? And like, he's like, look, we got to, he goes, he says to Hog Eye or Hog Face, he goes, turn that light back where it belongs. Mm-hmm. Away Brutal. from her. Yeah. Brutal. And like, he tries to very politely tell her about the mix up, co- coat her off. But of course, she leaves thinking that they're going to make a movie together. He, well, he's like, 
well, I know you have a sense of humor, so... And then he sees that she is, like, has been overwhelmed by this five seconds of people paying attention to her again and caring about her, and she is, like, sobbing. And he's like, oh, shit. Yeah, I, I'm not going to be able to break this to her. die right <laughs> yeah. now if I tell her that they just wanted to rent the car. And then Max finds out, again, like, separately, um, because he's waiting by the car, and these guys are like, oh, this is that long car. <laughs> <laughs> this is the long car we wanted. Yeah. <laughs> For the, for the long car follies. <laughs> yeah. It's a long, long, long car. That's the name of the movie. That do. It's like a train scene, but it takes yeah. place in a car. <laughs> I'm on the observation car of this car. Uh, but then, like, you know, she leaves the studio thinking that, like, Salome is going to be Cecil B. DeMille's next feature. Mm -hmm. And then there's a great montage of her going through all these insane beauty treatments as, like, as Joe Gillis begins to sneak out at night to work on the screenplay with Betty Schaefer, the young mm -hmm. the screen girl so like he's he's sort of moonlighting at night and, and one, of my, one of my favorite details is that betty begins to notice that there's something off when he sees her his solid gold cigarette case like or engraved or with a letter inside that says mad about the boy norma yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you know he's like again he's just like very ashamed by all this and yeah she's sort of like oh it's just a, a, a friend of mine you know she's got money she's, and he like his narration treats her almost crueler than the world did like yeah. with like not just indifference but like disgust and embarrassment like and yeah like not even pity i mean yes it's contempt yes he has contempt for her. he's like yeah he's, he's disgusted by her his character has pity for her but his voiceover has no pity oh, whatsoever yeah. and like that's the thing is like you know Norma Desmond, like, yeah, she's the monster of this movie, but like the real heel is Joe Gillis. Like, yeah. And like he's he's an he's an asshole to everyone from like yeah. the very beginning of the movie. He's like, terrible. He's, he's a really bad guy. Like, and we haven't mentioned it. Betty Schaefer is engaged to his best friend who is off shooting something on location in Arizona as he's falling in love with um his fiance. And he is just a horrible guy. <laughs> um, but there is a, a great scene where they're they're in the sort of writer's bungalow. They're banging out the script at night. And there's a great scene of them falling in love where they take a walk together, like on set through like a, a fake sort of, uh, yeah, like a, a, you know, like a fake a set town. Mm -hmm. And like they take a little a walk. The Paramount New York set. I've yeah. been there. It's crazy. <laughs> and that that's another meta moment too when they go to the Paramount New York set. Yeah, and also that she tells him that she was going to be an actress. Like she sort of like came out here to be in the industry as an actress, but they did a, a screen test with her where they said her nose was no good. Yeah, and she got um she got it fixed for three hundred dollars, and they. Then they were like, okay, now that we can see, now that we can look at you without throwing up, your acting isn't that good. So we're actually going to say no. <laughs> so if she became a writer because she's busted. Yeah. Which is like ridiculous because she's this gorgeous young woman. Yeah. Like. And then um, she is basically like, she kind of, as an analog to Keys almost, is happy with her position there. She's like, yeah, I love being, you know, uh, behind the camera. It's almost better in a way. But there's also, also this air of like, Gillis is like, she reminds me of all the young writers when they start out just wanting to see your name on the screen, like written by, you know, screenplay by. But um, and this feeling of like, 
oh, she just hasn't been chewed out yet. She's in the mouth of Hollywood. It yeah. just hasn't started chewing yet. Yeah, he's already been digested. Yeah, is, yeah. He's like, that's why he kind of falls in love with her. Like, again, because he's like a bad guy. Like, he's not really falling in love with her as a person, but rather like what she represents. Yeah. Nor does he really care that his, like, his only friend's fiance. He's doing to her what Norma yes. Desmond is doing to him. And like, also like the, the Betty Schaefer character is also like a sort of a, a road not taken for Norma Desmond herself because like, because she is rejected for like having the wrong nose, or like when the, the, the emphasis on looks as the only currency for women is removed from her, she is free to pursue a career that's actually rewarding and that she's suited for behind, behind the camera, being a mm-hmm. writer. Yeah. And like Joe, Joe Gillis, too, is like not old enough to be Norma Desmond, but not young enough to be. He's in this kind of limbo zone where he's not young or old, really. But he is kind of in Hollywood and chewed up, which is kind of like accelerates his... Hollywood accelerates your aging, kind yeah. of. Yeah, and th- and like he's finding that the script he's working on with Betty is actually good, mm-hmm. and like it's the first like meaningful thing he's written in years that wasn't you know like, it's not bases loaded, you yeah. know. Um, so like he comes home and he's driving the long car now. Like another 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 example of him becoming Max. Yeah, and then we get a great scene, probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie, where he comes back from you know sur- you know sort of like clandestinely romancing slash working with this younger woman, Betty Schaefer, and he parks a car in the garage and Max, again, like a fucking ghoul is just like in the shadows waiting for him there. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Oh, like, what are you spying on me? But really what he's doing is like, he's not going to, ra- he's not going to snitch to Norma about what he's doing. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Yeah. He's he like, tells him like, be very careful coming back in the house. So Madame <laughs> yeah. doesn't see you. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> One quiet step, two quiet step. <laughs> So Max has been, as I said, covering for Norma and her delusions for years. But then for the first time, he says, I discovered her. What? He was her. He directed her in her first movie and that he was the director, along with D.W. Griffith and DeMille, that was like the hotshots of the silent era. Not only was her first was he her first director, he Max was her first husband. Mm hmm. So, Boom. yeah, like, so that, like, he's now had two subsequent husbands, now has this kept man, but, like, he went from, he, go, he transitioned seamlessly from being husband to ex to butler. Yeah. And it's just, like, it casts, like, everything that you've seen about Max so far in the movie, it becomes so, again, so disturbing and yeah. weird. It's just, like, he's always in the background playing the organ, polishing champagne flutes, uh, just, like, doting on her every need, and, like, is this, like, affectless like you know like emotionless just like statue mm-hmm. it's just a like her that does everything for a her husk. yeah he's, he's a husk because like he has poured out everything of his soul he, he's given to this woman and like not just given to her but given to like this artifice of her this dream of her that has been dead for decades mm-hmm. and that he's like just in this hermetically sealed like a uh, universe of like dedication to this woman he discovered and fell in love with and it's almost like she can't escape because of him too. No, in a way. she would have crashed and burned years ago. Yeah, if it wasn't for his like constant attention and uh, writing all the phony fan letters and like mm. assuring her that D- Mr. Demille is calling any day now. Yeah, that like the public is demanding your return to the screen. Yeah, but like the longer this like dream and like this fantasy that she has goes on, the like more insane and the higher the height the like eventual crash is gonna come. Yeah, as we'll see in the in the like it's now pretty much the end of the movie. 
uh, Norma, like he, she sees the script with the name of Joe Gillis and Betty Schaefer on it. She calls Betty, and you know, basically, like you know, does a <laughs> harassing phone call to her, where she's mm-hmm. like, "I'm just, I'm looking out for you because you don't know." He's like, "Here," she says, uh, a, "A woman of your age probably doesn't even consider that men such as this even exist." Yeah, you know, like which hose. is so like man hose, and like there's another part where, um, even before that, Betty is like. Yeah, Arthur said that he's uh, going to be stuck in Arizona um, for he doesn't know like when he'll get back. And um, Gills is like, good. And she's like, good? And he's like, I mean, this is good dialogue that yeah, I'm writing yeah. right now. <laughs> um, so then like uh, uh, B- Betty shows up at the, the Munster Mansion. And this is when like, you know, like we, we go back to this idea of like, does anyone really know their motivations? And in this scene, like, Gillis spills everything to her and just takes her around the house, gives her the tour. Goes, oh, you don't recognize this? It's Norma Desmond. Like, look, she's everywhere in this house. And, like, he is really brutal to her mm-hmm. and, like, just says that, like, yeah, I've been sleeping with this crazy old woman for her I'm, money. Yeah. I'm broke. Yeah. And he makes it, he's so, he's so ashamed. And, like, it's the thing that really pushes him over the edge is when he, when she's like, I don't, I don't care about any of this. I haven't seen any of this. Let's just leave together right now. And he says, oh, like, well, what should I leave with? My 18 suits, like my, you know, 50 collared shirts, like my cufflinks. My five gold pocket watches. Yeah, exactly. And it's the shame of having had this woman buy him all this stuff and, like, make him into a doll, really, Mm -hmm. and dress him up and make him pretty and make him this little, like, you know, like, lap dog, essentially. He's so ashamed by it that he, like, brutally tells her that, like, basically, like, this makes sense for me. I need the money. Why yeah, would I screw up a good thing, and he, like it, like he makes it about money because he's too ashamed of like to admit, or like he doesn't even know how he ended up in this situation. Yeah, and which is really just kind of like no real reason other than kind of like laziness and mm-hmm. just like the inertia of like events taking on a life of their own. And it's um, it also like harkens back to this dream he said he has when um, you know, and this whole movie it's like so tightly fucking written and like so like amazing. Because his first night there, he says, I had a dream that someone was playing an organ. And I, there was, like, a chimp that was just dancing around for this, like, organ grinder. And he, it's, it's like him. But it's also the chimp he saw the night before when he first got there. And um, it's like he becomes like the chimp. He's, he's a her, dead ape. He's a replacement for the yes. chimp, truly. Yeah, he's, he's he's lower than a chimp. Yeah, true. Like a chimp doesn't have like the self awareness. Yeah, to, to like to comment to on how <laughs> evil and absurd this situation is. They're just you know smoking cigarettes, taking Valium all day until they rip your face and dick off. Like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, but the interesting thing is that like he he tells Betty like basically good night and good luck. Uh, you know, marry Artie. Like I'm. But I'm damaged goods. It was just basically like, I don't care about you. It's better for me to just stay with this insane woman for money because what am I going to do? Go back to my one bedroom apartment in Hollywood? Like, what are we going to get married? And then, like, you know, or we're going to work on this screenplay that's probably not going to sell anyway. Mm-hmm. But, like, that's not really his motivation because as soon as Betty leaves, he packs up his stuff and tells Norma that he's leaving her anyway. Yeah. He's not staying for the money. Yeah. He's like, he's off the tracks. Like, he's the. Like to go back to the train or trolley metaphor, the tro- the track has ended and he's just stopped at the end and he can see the whole trip like clearly in the back behind him. This is Max. Like he will just become Max. Yeah, and he's just like 
he doesn't know where he's going, but he knows he's done with everything. He's going to back to Dayton to be a copywriter. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's like, that would be like less shameful than the situation that I'm in. Yeah, now. exactly. Like, and no one in back in Dayton will have to know about this. But like, you know, Betty knows soon everyone in Hollywood will know the joke of like Joe Gillis being this organ grinder for this insane woman. Um, he tells Norma he's leaving. She takes it great. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> She's like, you know what? Do what you got to do. He's like, um, yeah, I understand. I, I respect you. you. Know, Call me every once in a while. Honestly, the power dynamic in this relationship was so skewed from the beginning. I'm yeah, considering yeah, yeah. doing a you know a restorative justice session with me and Max a little bit later. Yeah, I'm going to turn this into a screenplay. It's going to be a masterpiece. Um, <laughs> uh, no, she immediately threatens suicide and then finds a gun. Where did the gun come from again? Or? She says at one point that she has a gun. Or she says, like, you thought I was lying about the gun. I don't remember her saying anything about the gun. I don't remember, like, when she says she has it. But she's like, um, I do have a gun. See, I'll show you. And then, like, um, and she's, like, clutching it. And she's like, look, look, Joe. <laughs> it's here. And then Joe, like, very cruelly, finally, like, shatters her illusion about Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, he's like, you know, he tells her, like, they wanted your car, not you. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like, like, Again, like she is just an artifact. She is no different than an object now. Like she might as well yeah. be dead, like a or non-animate, like this fucking long car. And uh, you know, she says, "Max, Max, it's not true. You tell him." And then Max just comes in like a statue once again and goes, "Madame is the greatest star of them all." And he's like yeah. just still playing it on. And then and- he's leaving, and she says, "Like I'm a star. I'm the greatest star of them all." No one leaves stars. That's what makes them stars. And then the last thing Joe Gillis says to her is uh, he says, there's nothing tragic about being 50. (laughs) Not unless you pretend to be 25. (laughs) And I love that because it's like what it's like. It's sort of like uh, like vampires. You have to invite them into your house. It's sort of like once you tell a vampire how old they actually are, they lose their power. Yeah. The power, their power of glamour. And hypnotism is just sort of the spell is broken, and you know like that's just it. And like he walks out the door, she chases after him, shoots him into the swimming pool. As we saw in the beginning, he like he sort of just walks into the swimming pool, mm-hmm. and then you get the great line. We catch up to the present moment, and you get the great line in voiceover. Him as a ghost saying. It's funny how gentle people get with you when you're dead. Yeah. As they sort of gingerly <laughs> lift his body out of the drink and put it on a gurney. Yeah. And then we get to see like, and again, like this is why I think this movie like Double Indemnity is like really prophetic about kind of like the evil and rottenness at the heart of the American project and character is that like Norma finally gets her celebrity again. And like this is really prophetic about the world we live in now is that like, how do you get celebrity? Uh, through murder. Mm-hmm. and like through murder the cameras are back and the cameras are here and ready and there's a great scene where um like the <laughs> the, the the police are they're all like they're at the crime scene at her mansion and like the press the- is there there's cops and there's a cop picks up her phone and tries to contact the coroner's office but like a hollywood reporter gossip columnist is already on the line yeah like get this headline as, as you know the as dawn breaks on the murder house faded starlet glorious started norma desmond sorry glorious Swanson. yeah as you yeah. see the, the <laughs> nesting doll is getting a little confusing here yeah but she's like she's at her at her mirror and the cops are all assembled around her and it's like we get the great final scene of the movie where she like there is no reality anymore she mm-hmm. is now fully ensconced in the dream world of movies she's enfolded in her dream i think is what he, yes. he says something like that like it um, she wanted to live in it, and it enfolded her. And um, there's this. She 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 has fully adopted movie mindset. Yeah, there's this like amazing scene where there's like the the thinnest thinnest diegetic explanation for why 
um, Eric von Stronheim is standing by these TV cameras that have studio Hollywood lights. Yeah. And everyone starts acting like an extra. And, um, but it's even better because it's so dreamlike. It's like, um, you know, the it reminds me of the end of Beau Travai when there's yeah. just that random dance scene. Yes, yes. This like these crazy moments in movies where the last scene is just so insane and in like a different universe than the rest of the movie that it just like makes you want to weep. And she just like slowly walks down the stairs as everyone is still as a fucking statue. And it's like one of the most the one of the best endings. Ever. Yeah, I mean it's one of the most iconic like last scenes of a movie ever. Max becomes her director again. He says, quiet on set mm-hmm. and action. And like she, she, she is now appears as Salome. And he says, she goes, what scene are we doing? And he says, this is the staircase of the palace. And like, you know, she's in costume and sort of floats down these stairs. And you said, everyone around her is like, is like, you know, uh, furniture. They're like, they're like a matte painting or something. And she like comes down the stairs and the, the, the cameras that are like, you know, in the movie and then the movie camera of the movie itself focuses on her and, you know, pulls in tight on her. And she goes, I'm just so happy to be back in the studio making a picture. And then we get, this is my life. There's nothing else. Just us and the cameras and those wonderful people out there in the dark. Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up. And then the camera itself of the movie closes in on her and then fades into the end and it's just like and and like I said this meta referential thing of referencing those people out there in the dark watching the movie and that Mm -hmm. like both we and Norma Desmond are fully enfolded in the dream of movies but like you know what the movie is about is that like uh, Americans like obsession with celebrity and the idea that like the only people who matter are the ones whose names are in lights. And when you see mm-hmm. them in those credits, like screenplay by or, you know, starring, is that like, yeah, like it, it gives you this otherworldly power, but it, in exchange for your life. Yeah. And that, like, like, you know, like, like it, you, you become the living dead. Like you become a vampire because like, you know, once that attention goes away, like what you are left with is just like the husk mm-hmm. of like everything taken out of you by what was put up there on the screen. And that there is only thing, the only thing that is real is you on the screen. And like the movies are like a vampire too because they just like suck everything yeah, out they're, of they're you. Yeah, they're, like, like, they're, they're, the, they're the vampire like disease. They're the, the parasite mm-hmm. like in, 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 the, in our culture that like, you know, attaches itself to these people and raises them up mm-hmm. but also like drains all the life out of them. Yeah, because once you've had a taste, yeah. you, can't, you can't go back to being one of those people in the dark that you lie and say everything is for. You know, because it's not for them. And you know that if you're on the screen like Glorious or like uh, Norma Desmond and you know that everything is for you, kind of like it's all, you know, because you've been told that by like producers and directors and agents and fans and everything. And you get told it so much that you believe it. And then once they're done with you, it's like, no, wait, like. I'm not one of the people down there in the dark. I'm one of the people that's up here, like on the screen, you know? Yeah. Like I said, that's, that's Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. That's Sunset Boulevard. And, you know, like a movie about like, yeah, the, the, the monster at the heart of celebrity and like a particularly American kind of madness. I have a, what, one last little uh, anecdote here from the um, making of the movie is that um, in a Paramount arranged a private screening of this movie for various studio heads and their invited guests. 
and Louis B. Mayer in particular uh, berated Wilder before a crowd of celebrities telling him, you have disgraced the industry that made and fed you. You should be tarred and feathered and run out of Hollywood. Upon hearing of Mayer's slight, Wilder showed up to the mogul and retorted with a vulgarity that one biographer said was allegedly because Mayer, who was Jewish, suggested that Wilder, who was also Jewish, would be better off being sent back to Germany. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and then, and, 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 and 2020, uh, some recounted biography that, uh, perhaps while they told mayor to go fuck yourself, <laughs> but yeah, like, uh, yeah, he, he spit upon the Hollywood that made him in mm-hmm. this movie and thank God he did yeah, or else we wouldn't have sunset Boulevard. Yes. There, there is nothing else out there other than what's on the screen. Truly. So again, taken in tandem, uh, like I think both these movies really inform each other uh, greatly, and they inform like pretty much every good American movie that's come after them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and you can see like you know like if you're a fan of David Lynch, like and you haven't seen Sunset Boulevard, you will see the Rosetta Stone for like basically half of the movies that he's made. Absolutely, and like there's also uh, just a touch of Lynch and Double Indemnity in the wig that Barbara Stanwyck wears, <laughs> but um, you know like Coen Brothers, Tarantino, all those self-referential shit. Yeah. Like, the entire school of, like, um, you know, Kevin Smith, the, like, video store filmmakers, and, like, the, like, Sunset Boulevard is famously, like, all of the, like, French New Wave guys are, like, this is the best movie ever, um, because of how just meta it is, and how all the movie minutiae that appeals to their movie autism, while also being, like, very, like, so cynical, and so anti-Hollywood but obsessed with Hollywood. It's anti-Hollywood but like it's anti-Hollywood but at the same time it elevates the people who make movies to like the the primary source of interest in movies themselves. Yeah. So you can tell why that would appeal to someone like the got you know Godard or the Calle du Cinema. Yeah absolutely. It feeds the ego in a a weird way of like uh, so yeah I guess we'll we'll leave it there that is uh, well actually no let's not not leave it there that let's let's do a little bit about Further viewing or inquiry into Billy Wilder, if you enjoyed this episode. Yes. Uh, has that, like if, after Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity, uh, what are some other Billy Wilder movies that uh, that speak to you or that you would recommend for people to watch? I mean, like you said, Stalag Seventeen is an absolute stone cold classic. Some like it hot, which is a transgender iconic, you know, transgender film. And like, and, and I just recently watched Some Like It Hot again, like you know. Famously, a movie about uh, two men who pretend to be women to escape the mob. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, Tony Curtis or Jack Lemmon? Who's better as a lady? Oh, Tony Curtis. <laughs> yeah, really? Sure. I was going to say Jack Lemmon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, rewatching that movie, it, it, it made in the fifties. It is funny. Like none of the jokes are at the expense of like uh, the the sort of like the transsexual like el- elements of the like. So much humor is mined from it, but none of the jokes are like mean my, or, or like uh, jeering in any way. It has one of my favorite final lines of any yes. movie ever. Which is um, when it's Jack Lemon, Jack right? Lemon, yeah. yeah. Jack Lemon is like um, the old lecher who's been like romancing him the entire movie. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, "I'm a man," and the guy says, "Nobody's perfect." Yeah. <laughs> uh, like yeah, like uh, some like it hot, like you know, like we talk about how Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard are like kind of like the first really modern American movies or postmodern, I guess you should say, and like some like it hot is really one of the first like 
we just had Ike Barinholtz on the show. It's like one of the first actually funny movies that yeah. Hollywood ever made. Oh, for real. Outside of the Buster Keaton, of course. Yeah, I, Buster Keaton. There's some Howard Hawks, like His Girl Friday is like... Or like Bringing Up Baby and stuff like oh, that. Oh, Bringing Up yeah. Baby is like a horror movie almost. Yeah. It's like the most anxiety-inducing movie of <laughs> another, all time. Another movie about exotic pets. Yeah. <laughs> the, the trouble that can happen from exotic pets. I would just continue with uh, with Billy Wilder. Like, you know, maybe even more cynical than Double Indemnity and, and uh, Sunset Boulevard is Ace in the hole with Kirk Douglas, which is like a very jaundiced view of like the newspapers and like journalism and the media. I'd also include uh, Kiss Me Stupid. Have you ever seen that one? I haven't actually. It's with Ray Walston and Dean Martin playing himself. It's a movie that was like, I remember reading about it and someone was talking about how like when they, when this movie came out, uh, they, they were like, you know, the Catholic household and they said like the Catholic church, in addition to like the movie rating system at the time had their own movie ratings Mm -hmm. and they had three ratings. One was like approved, like morally wholesome. Mm-hmm. Second was like, you know, unapproved, like contains elements that, you know, are perhaps sinful. And then the third category was like, uh, if you see this movie, you are putting your mortal soul at peril. <laughs> yeah. and, and Kiss Me Stupid was one of the few movies rated uh, that, you know, verboten yeah. by the Catholic Church because it is a movie about uh, wife swapping. Yeah, it's the movie that it made it the Pope throw his hat in the trash out of anger. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... <laughs> and then I would also throw in a uh, witness for the prosecution starring oh. Charles Lawton and Marlena Dietrich, which I just saw for the first time recently. That, that is I fantastic. Love that. Mo- that might be my favorite. Um, Marlena Dietrich, just because the, um, the whole idea of that movie is what if a woman who looks like Marlena Dietrich wasn't evil? <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> and uh, Charles Lawton as the barrister in that movie is like oh, one of my fantastic. favorite favorite film performances. I love watching like a barrister have small talk with um one of with like his uh, his girl Friday kind of like uh, that the and- nurse who won't let him drink brandy and yeah, cigars yeah, yeah. He, like he just like he's right in the movie be, as it begins he's like convalescing from having like 10 heart attacks <laughs> in a row just yeah like- <laughs> <laughs> and then like all the whole movie he's just scheming to get away from this you know this nurse who's just trying to keep him alive yeah but for keeping from sw- swigging brandy and smoking cigars constantly but he catches him every time yeah <laughs> This is my Billy Wilder rec. Uh, All of his movies are great. I actually think this is a lesser film of his in terms of overall quality, uh, but probably the one that I find the most entertaining. The uh, Seven Years Itch, which, of course, has the um, iconic Marilyn Monroe shot of Over the Subway Great, but is a good watch just to see a 50s guy uh, so horny that he is on the verge of exploding for yeah. 95 minutes. It's a, it's a very good performance. It's a movie about edging, kind of, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then I, I guess the one, the, one, the one that's also one of my absolute favorites is uh, the, the comedy One, Two, Three. Um, I haven't seen starring, that one. Um, uh, James Cagney. It's a great like Cold War satire of like capitalism, fascism, and communism. It's it's one of those movies that's like there is a joke or a gag like every ten seconds, and Cagney is just delivering like rapid fire spoofs and goofs. It's just like he's got the see here he plays a Coca Cola executive in West Germany right after World War II, <laughs> who has to like basically save the president like you know like uh, like his boss's daughter from being romanced by like an East German communist radical. <laughs> and it is just, it's just madcap screwball hijinks. It is a, I love the movie. It's very funny. And, you know, again, once again, like all these movies have just such a, even if you like are not usually a fan of like black and white or quote unquote old movies, 
I would start with Billy Wilder because like all of his movies just have such a modern sensibility, both in like the writing, the performances, but also the directing of them. They seem like they could be made yesterday. Absolutely. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, that was Billy Wilder and then two of his all-time masterpieces. All right. So till next time, that was Movie Mindset. Thank you.